Welcome, everyone, to part nine of the Nolan Countdown miniseries. On this week's episode, the Countdown gang explores the far reaches of space, or at least Christopher Nolan's vision for it, as we revisit Nolan's turn at an epic space opera, Interstellar. Before we get into that, however, with me today, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, and our Countdown series guest, Jay Habib. Guys, how are you doing? Doing pretty good, Scott. Um, well, I mean, you know, relatively speaking, I guess. I, yeah. Right now, I'm kind of just waiting out the bar exam stuff. The Tennessee canceled their July administration today. Um, a few other states in the past couple of days have moved online or just canceled their July thing. So, I mean, I, it, it's coming for North Carolina, I think. The, the writing is on the wall um, that they're going to, I think, move it back to September and then when we get to September and they realize that it's still all, all in hell, I don't know what they're going to do at that point. But um, yeah, so, so not exactly encouraging at the moment um, that I could, uh, that I really don't know when I will be licensed or, and, or have a job. Um, but these are the uncertain times that we live in. And I guess there are other people out there who have it even worse. Yeah. Certainly not the best time to be exiting school uh, th- this past year, but nope. The the current date they already moved it back to August, right? No, it is Jul- it is July twenty seventh and twenty eighth right now. Is oh, okay, is so they, what they have stuck to, and you know they're they're flip flopping on whether you have to wear a mask the whole time or not, and um, it, it you know basically still saying we can still postpone it even though you know like people me and everyone else is two months deep into studying, and if they move it back to September at this point. Um, then it's going to screw over everyone's study plans. Um, but, you know, they, they need to move it. Like, they honestly do. But the annoying thing is they should have just done this two months ago because it was obvious that this was going to happen. And other states had already moved it, theirs two months ago. But anyway. Yeah, not the best. Jay, how are you doing? I'm okay, Scott. Um, definitely, you know, in the mood to watch a movie that talks about a post-apocalyptic future where people need to wear masks to keep their health safe and whatnot. <laughs> um all else but it restricts their freedoms Uh, no why are they wearing masks idiots yeah all else equal um i'm fine you know i'm uh you know excited to see you know if if we i don't know if excited is the right word but i'm i'm anxious to see what ends up happening with tenet right when this episode gets dropped well it's august 14th right now yeah actually actually no it's not it's technically in the middle of the week right it's like august 11th because they want to drop it in the middle of the week so there isn't this like mad rush for everyone to go see it on like a Friday night. Yeah, I don't really see it happening. But Christopher Nolan has some weird hero complex about having to be the guy who saves cinema. So it has to come out in August, which feels I mean, pretty if anyone could, you know, I thought it would be him if it could be anybody. But it just might. It's but just, I, think, I don't think it can. You know, yeah, this is a separate conversation, maybe. But I think that there's some there's some it's weird to want to save cinema if the cost is more people getting coronavirus and potentially dying, be like, cool, you saved cinema, but you also killed people, literally killed people with your, but he would have earned the respect of Martin Scorsese. I'm sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Christopher Nolan already has the respect of Martin Scorsese, but I could be wrong. He has made a couple a few comic book movies and we know how Scorsese feels Mm -hmm. about those. So maybe, maybe he has mixed feel. Maybe Scorsese came up to him after the dark Knight rises and like, look, Chris, I really appreciate that you make movies, but you don't make film. How about you make a space opera and a war film, and then we can talk. Boom. So I'm really, I'm really curious when Chris Nolan is going to make his gangster movie. 
Like he's going to make a mob movie at some point to really earn the full respect of Scorsese. And he he told probably him not going to be Tenet. Your Joker, I didn't really like it. Now, here's the Joker we need. That basically is just a rip off of three of my movies. <laughs> Look, your Joker was cool, but mine is based off two of my movies. Yeah. So take that. All right, guys. Um, why, don't we anyway. just go ahead, why don't we go ahead and move on to that space opera that we were talking about? Set in a dystopian 2067, where Earth has been ravaged by a blight similar to but far worse than the Dust Bowl from the 1930s, humanity is struggling to survive and only seems a generation or two away from extinction on Earth. Joseph Cooper, played by Matthew McConaughey, is a widowed NASA pilot who has become a farmer after NASA was shut down by the government and now lives with his father-in-law, Donald, played by John Lithgow, and his two children, Murph, the younger version of whom is played by Mackenzie Foy, while Jessica Chastain plays the adult version, and Tom, played by, an, uh, at the time, yet, yet discovered Timothy Chalamet, and Casey Affleck, then 20-plus years later. Cooper is frustrated by his forced destiny of, be of being a farmer, but when strange dust patterns occur one day in Murph's room after an intense dust storm, Cooper decodes the geographic coordinates of NASA's secret facility, led by Michael Caine's Professor John Brand. Seemingly by fate, Cooper has stumbled into what may be the final expedition to explore the far reaches of the Milky Way and beyond in search of a new home for Earth. And, lo and behold, NASA needs a pilot the quality of Cooper. Brand successfully recruits Cooper, but allows him time to wish his family goodbye before blasting off to travel through a wormhole near Saturn that should lead to three potentially viable planets for humanity's survival. All right, guys, this isn't Nolan's first attempt at a sci-fi film, but it is his first and thus far only attempt at a space movie. But before we get into whether or not you think this is a successful foray into that great unknown, I'd love to start with your expectations for this rewatch, or in Scott's case, first watch. So Scott, we'll start with you first. What were your expectations for Interstellar? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because I'm kind, I'm kind of in two minds about it. On the one hand, space movies don't always do it for me. Like, you know, there are some that, you know, we, we've joked, Scott, before about the the oopis movies or whatever, the emotionally withdrawn person in space movies um, that uh, I, I think don't always don't always resonate with me. But at the same time, there have been a lot of space movies, it seems like that I have been into, you know, in the in the past several years, whether it's like we had Ad, Ad Astra last year, um, um, Arrival for, from several years ago, uh, even like Contact oh. is, an, is another like, I mean, that's a much older film, but that's like, oh. a, you know, this type of cerebral sci-fi or whatever that uh, I think, I, I think I, I went into this movie like, I don't know. Is the, do I have room to, for another one? Because you know, I, I really, really love all three of those films that I mentioned there. Um, and you know, I, I'd stayed away from this movie for a while. I was like, I, I just don't know if I have any more any more room for this one. So I I was kind of caught in two minds. At the same time, you know, I, I was kind of a jay going into this one, and in that I didn't really know very much about the movie. I uh, I knew that Matt Damon made an, a cameo or like made a surprise appearance. And that, that was like a huge surprise because no one knew that he was going to be in the movie. But I didn't know anything about like what the movie was about, what the tone was. I, I, I had managed to insulate myself, you know, from whatever people even think about this movie. So um, I, I was interested to see, you know, when I came out of the movie for sure, 
what the what the reactions of people were compared to my own reaction because I, I really just didn't have any sense of what sort of the discourse is on this movie even you know six years later or whatever yeah totally uh yeah so i mean look we, we we'll definitely get into i think a lot of, a lot of the points that you're mentioning there but you mentioned contact and kip thorne who's the theoretical physicist who was the main you know consultant basically on the project also worked on contact so there's some definitely some some through lines there and i, I will say arrival is sort of a space movie i mean technically not a space yeah, movie, but yeah. it's an alien movie cerebral sci-fi movie but yeah definitely. contact is definitely like oh this movie owes a lot to contact well yeah and, and i think that it, it it it's not shy about about that either especially since yeah. the the phys the physicist who worked on on contact and is McConaughey's also in both of them. So <laughs> that's true. I actually forget that McConaughey is in that one. But yeah, absolutely good points. So I'll be interested to hear what your thoughts are based on those expectations. But Jay, let's hear from you. I know you have certain you had certain expectations going into this, and so I'd love to to hear what those were, and the audience can hear them as well. Sure, um, they weren't high, to put it simply. Um, you know, we'll we'll get into how those expectations, you know, may or may not have held over. But uh, mm. I, I remember this movie being a little too loud, a little too long, and honestly, like, a little bit disappointing, um, yeah. you know, like, all, all things considered, and, uh, you know, I, I actually really was not excited about this rewatch, to, to, be, to be completely honest, like, you know, just the idea of, like, sitting down and watching this long of a movie that I didn't remember really liking, it, it definitely, yeah. you know, came in lower going into the movie than any movie we've done in the countdown so far that I had already seen. Yeah, so with the exception of following, because you'd seen the rest of them, right? Yes. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it, it's it's a long film. It's it's Chris Nolan's longest film. It clocks in at like two hours and fifty one minutes or something like that. And it, uh, I I <laughs> I love making this. I was making this joke to my girlfriend who I was texting when I was rewatching the film last night, and I was like, "Good, no, I'm fifty minutes in, and the movie actually starts. So you got your fifty minute prologue, and then you have your normal length movie, which is, I mean, look, it, that is what it is. Um, it's I think it's always. It's always a different experience when you're rewatching it on your couch. You can press pause or whatever. And as in a theater, if you I mean, I didn't see this in theater. Obviously, Scott didn't see it. Jay, I assume that you did see it in theater, but that's just an assumption. Yeah, you did. OK, yeah. So it's a little bit different when you have to sit there in in, in the theater. And I was always worried with Avengers Endgame being three hours long. Example that I would feel the same way. I didn't feel that way in Avengers Endgame. I don't know how I would have felt watching this straight through uh, in a theater. But yeah, the expectations there you're talking about, about it being long, about it being maybe disappointing in some ways on an, on an initial watch. I think I shared this. Like, I, I don't know if I've said it on air, but I certainly haven't been shy about saying it off air that Interstellar, probably one of my least favorite Nolan films that I'd seen before. I mean, it's probably down there it, before the rewatches always started, like probably down there in that, in that bottom tier that I would have also put Insomnia in uh which is again everything's relative right like these are still i think good movies and i and i wouldn't have said interstellar was a bad movie going into it either it just would have been one of the ones that excited me least about revisiting it but i'd only seen it once so i was interested to see what it would be like on a rewatch i didn't see it in theaters i, I caught it i think the summer after i guess actually so I, I wasn't too far behind seeing this film but I, I didn't get to see it in theaters and i think even at the time when i saw it i i definitely thought that wow i wish i had seen this in theaters right because film's incredible in terms of like visuals. I mean, that's one thing that I, that I wouldn't, that I have never thought about the film is that it doesn't have good visuals. I mean, Gargantua, the black hole or whatever, it's just like huge. I mean, incredible thing. And thing costs like tens, if not, I think, I think it's, I think it costs tens of millions of dollars to render basically over the, over the course of thing. And we talk more about that later, but yeah, the visuals in, in this are stunning. And although it wasn't contemporaneous, right? Like you get 
basically McConaughey made this cut right coming right, right off true detective. And I'd seen true detective. I'm a huge fan of true detective, but I really just felt like McConaughey was kind of doing his true detective shtick here. And, and I think that is true to some extent, but we'll get into that more. Um, and so, yeah, I think my expectations were lukewarm about rewatching it, but I, I was interested in rewatching it because it was, I think of the films that I had seen, I think it was the only one that I'd seen only once. I think for reasons that, that, uh, that both of you have said on and off air about it. It's just really long. Like, it's really long. It's a, it's a it's a meal to think about. I'm going to sit down now and watch this for three hours, and, and so that had that had always dissuaded me from revisiting it before now. But I'm glad that I did. And before I talk about those, how those expe- expectations translated to to what this experience was like in reality, I'd love to hear from you guys first. Scott, we'll start with you since you're the one who hadn't seen it before. What did you think of Interstellar? This movie's amazing. Um, I really, really loved this movie, and I. Um, was not expecting to feel the way that I, I did about it um, for the reasons that I kind of mentioned beforehand. But I think this is kind of, and, and I mean, look, all respect to Arrival and to Contact, because I think those movies are in the same vein as what I'm about to say. But I think this is the this, this space movie that maybe I've been waiting for because of it's not an emotionally withdrawn person in space movie at all, right? It's, it is quite the opposite. It is... Um, a very emotion driven experience, which, you know, I, I wasn't expecting because of the space element, but I also wasn't expecting because it's Nolan. Right. And, and that's just not the type of film that Nolan makes. Like even, even his best movies, like the, the dark Knight, you know, uh, you know, is, is probably our favorite. Like, it's not like an emotionally taxing, emotionally exhausting movie in the way that, that this is like, yes, there, there are emotional moments in the story, but this is just something completely different for him. And, and even like Inception, for example, like Inception is a great film, but at the end of the movie, at least for me, I mean, I know y'all are probably even more positive than I am, but I, I kind of, I don't know. I, I feel a little cold. Like that was an incredible, like formal exercise, but it didn't leave me with any like, feelings um and and this movie definitely did um uh, and obviously that's that's by design and so i I, you know i that just took me completely by surprise because because you know because of nolan that that you know you know being a major reason why because that's just not the type of film that i'm accustomed to seeing from him um but i don't know i I was absorbed from the word go and and i think that yeah yes it is it is a long film i again i was absorbed the whole time but i think that because it is so emotionally demanding, um, maybe that is why you feel the length at times. Like when, when you get to the end, you just kind of feel like spent in a way because, um, you know, not not only is it the usual like intellectual rigor of a Nolan film where you're like just trying to figure out what exactly is going on, you know, half the time, but also, you you know, you're feeling a lot of things, not just through the McConaughey character and, you know, his relationship with, with it with Murph obviously is is a big element of it but the Anne Hathaway character too I think has some really really good emotional moments I think that this is the one where Nolan gets the female characters right he finally did it um yeah you want to know you want to know why he finally did it because he didn't actually have Anne Hathaway have to fall in love with any one of the main characters in the yes, film yeah <laughs> um and and even the kiss at the end between Chastain and Topher Grace was kind of like oh I'm just doing this because we're celebrating I don't actually like yeah feel anything for you um i mean isn't that who ended up being her husband i don't know it's kind of ambiguous yeah at the end, I, guess. I, I will say that he still did the like the expositional character thing like the ellen page and inception thing but this time it was a male right it was it topher grace is that character in this movie and so uh, yeah. 
I, I forgive him because at least he didn't make it the female this time. But yeah, I mean, like I understand some of the problems with, with this movie, like some, some of the things involving the science, especially at the end, I understand don't necessarily add up, but like for me as like, in terms of like how I understand the science, like, I am probably the average moviegoer, which is to say that I don't know anything about it. And so all of this science could have been made up to me. Like I only discovered that it was like one of the most scientifically accurate movies ever um, after the movie. So like some of the things people say about, you know, that the, what happens at the end with, you know, going through the black hole and uh, love transcending all and all of that stuff. Like, yes, like maybe common sense would tell you that hey, this seems a little far fetched. But like, again, I, the, the, the whole movie was like that for me. I was like, sure. Like wh why not? At, at that point, I just kind of surrendered to it. And I mean, you know, the fact of the matter is we don't know that much about black holes. So yeah, yeah it's, it seems implausible that this could happen, but, uh, but anyway, pro probably getting ahead of myself. The, the point is this is not, I mean, I still hold the, the dark Knight in higher regard at this point, but I could see this on, you know, after rewatch, after, after a few rewatches becoming my, my favorite Nolan film. I, I think that, I am very much on team interstellar. I, I really loved it. Yeah. I will say this before I get into my general questions. I do want to get Jay's thoughts before I say mine is that I think I have a more evolved take on the ending where I'm still not entirely positive on it, but I'm not as dismissive or negative on it as I was before. And I, and I think that I've arrived at a, maybe a more reasonable position to, to sit out with, with, with the finale of the film, but I'll get to that. We, we will talk all about, all about the black hole. Uh, later on, don't worry. We're, we have a long section, I'm sure, ahead of us for that. But Jay, what are your thoughts on the on this revisit? Were your expectations met? Exceeded? Was it even worse than you were expecting? Or what was it? What were you feeling? Oh my God, so many thoughts. Um, based on what Scott Harvey you just said. Um, let's start. Let's just start your thoughts the, first. We'll we'll address yeah, Scott. Sure. This is going to be the reverse start of the prestige episode. I can see it happening. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I love no, it. it. Makes I mean, a great episode. Here, here's the thing. I think. I think like you, Scott Sheldon, like I, I think I came out of this film with a more evolved take on it. I think the first time I came out, I was like, my hands were thrown up and I was like, are you yeah. kidding? Like Nolan could do so much better. Like that wasn't like, I don't want to really talk about the ending too much yet, but you know, exactly. I, I came out like an angry fanboy to be like, just completely honest. Um, and I, I think my take evolved. I, I think I appreciated some things about this movie that I probably didn't last time I saw it, this, I actually only had seen this one once in the theater and I was like, I'm never watching it again. <laughs> and if it went up with this countdown, I probably wouldn't have. Um, Scott Harvey. Well, I guess, well, I guess, it, well, I, was, I, guess I was in this, the middle of a yawn. That was, I wasn't like, oh, okay. a simple question, I guess. And then you can jump into the rest of your thoughts. Then going off, going off hearing that, like, will you watch this film again at some point? Probably. Okay. I, no, I, go, think, no, I think go so. Ahead. So clearly so, that you you liked it more this time around, it sounds like. Yeah. So again, like I, I think my take on it evolved. I think I appreciated like how visually stunning it was more this time than last time. And again, like, ironic you know, that you weren't in a movie theater this time, but you appreciated well, the visual. Like, more. I, again, like I, and and I would love to hear from someone who actually, you know, had seen it in the theater, not to, like just you guys or anything, but like it, it was it was a little bit overwhelming in the theater. I think especially oh, I like, the, so, yeah. the score. Like I think this is like the one movie like Hans Zimmer like slightly misfired. Being overwhelming. Okay, um, okay, okay. <laughs> we'll get onto this. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on this because sure, sure. I, I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll just come back to it. It, it, it did better. You know, I, I think this movie is simultaneously like, like super cool, but also really frustrating still for me for some reasons. Yeah. I, I think I like it more than I did last time. Yeah, I mean one of the one of the one of the crazy things about this is that I think this is like the only movie the like movie ever. 
that theaters have posted signs on their doors to tell you that we are not messing up the sound of this film. This is intentional. This is what the this is what the filmmaker wants. Like it was intentional that the film was so loud that you couldn't hear some of the dialogue. Like it's it's real. It's like it's real. It's like they designed it that way. They mixed it that way, and it and it boggles my mind that they did that because it's one of the things that I don't. I think it's one of the things I don't like about the films that you literally. I had to turn on subtitles. I never turn on subtitles in a movie, and I had to turn on subtitles for this film. Um, I just like could not hear what was being said for for movie, large chunks of it. Didn't this movie get nominated for an Academy Award for sound mixing? Or I'm sure it did. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah I, that, okay. So, so the, sound, the sound mixing is not the issue. The sound editing is the issue. Not the mixing. It doesn't. We, we'll never have to okay, worry sure. about this again because the, now, because right, the categories right, yeah. are getting combined. The sound now. You're right. You're right. Go on. Yeah, the, the categories are getting combined, so you never have to worry about this again. But they, I, it definitely got nominated for sound mixing. Let me. I'm. I'm quickly. It did get also nominated for sound editing, which again it boggles my mind. I mean, look, the sound editing for most of the film is is really good, right? It's just the moments where they like blast you out of the. I'm sure they blast you out of the auditorium, which is honestly, guys, I'm I'm being serious about this. I'm really bummed that it's Inception being played in on like july 31st and not yeah, interstellar I because i may or may not go see interstellar or sorry inception again i'm not sure we'll see how i feel about theaters and things like that but if interstellar being played like i missed this in theaters i would a thousand percent go see this movie in theaters and i definitely came out this time a lot more positive on the film and i'll like in being reflective on my first experience like so much of that experience was really soured by the end i'm like i was very very negative on the ending, I thought it was like the worst ending of a Nolan movie uh, that I had seen at the time. I hadn't seen following. I think following's definitely below that for sure. But I think for me this time is is that I think some things have stayed the same. Like I'm, this is still a movie that frustrates me in a lot of like very poignant ways. One one of them is the sound that I just mentioned there. I think one of them is, and the, and the other one still is the ending, right? Like I think my take has evolved for sure, and I think that my like my eye rolly throw my hands in the air take on the black hole thing. I'm actually like, you know what? To Scott Harvey's point here, and we'll talk more about this later, but like we don't know what's inside a black hole. Maybe maybe this like maybe this is just as likely as any other possibility of once you actually get inside a black hole. My problem is is how convenient then it takes it after the black hole. Right? Whatever. Black hole, like you get another dimension, you can physically travel through time and do things, whatever. Like we don't understand how that works in terms of gravity. Things like that. We just genuinely don't understand. And like you have physicists out there saying like, this is just as likely as the next thing. So you know, I'll take that. I'll throw my hands up and say, you know what? This seems ridiculous to me, um, but we just don't know. But we just don't know. But what we do know is that you probably don't get spit back out into space around Saturn outside of a wormhole after you travel through the black hole. And to me, that just feels like such a convenient, nice ending to your film. Um, to you know what, like we don't know what's inside a black hole, but you're probably not making out and getting blasted back to the Milky Way. Like you're just probably not. Like that just seems like something that like if you went and asked Neil deGrasse Tyson or Kip Thorne even, right? Like, do you think it's possible that you get thrown back out into like a completely different galaxy after you leave a black hole? And they're probably not they're probably gonna say, No, that's probably not what's gonna happen, right? Like they don't know, but it's probably not that I would think. Maybe I'm wrong here too. Maybe my third watch will allow me to, to revisit this take as well, right? But it just seems so so ridiculous to me. Whereas even the even with the black hole, I'm like, eh, whatever, right? We don't know. But getting spit back out and getting rescued, it, it just feels like more convenient than you see most Nolan Nolan films ending, uh, just for the purpose of your plot and and yes, there may be parts that set up, right? Like you get the whole Anne Hathaway's hand bending and the handshake from a fifth dimension. And you get this re you know, realization that there's not, they're not aliens, right? It's just humans. Like humans have done all of this, right? Like humans placed the wormhole. Humans like made this like fifth dimension within the black hole, right? Like these are all things that we just assume that humans have done. 
and that's fine. I think that's really interesting. I think that's a cool way to play it, right? Because um, like aliens, like I would never imagine seeing an alien movie in a Chris Nolan film. Like it just seems like so anathema to like what you'd see in a Nolan film in terms of like grounded reality, things like that. Because um, that is what Nolan, I think, tries to go for in, in spite of how, you know, uh, fantastical so, much, so many elements of his films are. He tries to keep them really grounded. And so for that reason, I think that it's just the end. The ending is just so convenient for me that I, I can't help but be a little bit frustrated, uh, a little bit frustrated by it. So I think that is like two of my main frustrations. But at the same time, I like I say that and I think about my general impressions of the film, like I, I really enjoyed my experience. I was very engaged, even though I knew everything that was going to happen. Uh, some of those, I mean, some of the moments, especially uh, once they're in the other galaxy, exploring the other planets, like so tense, like some of the best set pieces, I think, in, in Nolan movies, even. Um, I think that there's some real contenders here for some of the best scenes in Nolan films. And I think for me, the one that resonates most, and I'm not saving this to the end to talk about because uh, I'm saying it right here, it's just like that scene on, is it um, Miller's planet, the ocean planet? I think that scene is absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. like, I think that's phenomenal stuff. Um, like every single aspect. I'd love to, I'd love to see that thousand foot wave on 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 an IMAX 70 millimeter millimeter screen, which uh, some people did see it on when they, when it came out. Like it's just incredible visual effects, incredible um, set like set pieces, incredible acting too. Because I think one of this one of the things that you can't say about this movie is that it's lacking in any any part of the acting department. I think Matthew McConaughey uh, really bears all. I think that he even makes more sometimes than the script even gives him. I think one of the one of the things in this movie is that like the dialogue's kind of iffy sometimes. I think it's kind of wishy washy. Um, not not the best. Uh, screenplay probably, but I think Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway just really make the most of it. And Jessica Chastain probably, I mean, the grand scheme of things doesn't really get that much time on screen because so much of the film is really about um, younger Murph and then uh, she gets some time towards the end. I mean, she gets some really big moments at the end, of course, but uh, she doesn't give in that much time on screen. And so I think it really falls on Matthew McConaughey's back and Anne Hathaway's shoulders as well. And I think overall, it's just a really fantastic experience. And it wasn't really expecting that because I really expected to kind of maybe not explicitly like Jay, but kind of like Jay, just not not really ever want to watch this movie again. Right. But now it's some of the things where like, you know, if I had to rate its quality, maybe I think I'd still probably put it in the bottom tier of Nolan films. But like well, the, the things that it gets right in the moments that it's really good. I mean, it's some of the best Nolan at the same time. And it feels really strange to say that. And, and yes, I like Arrival more. I, I'm I'm totally in the arrival camp. I feel partly responsible for Scott warming up to arrival because I like basically guilted him into rewatching it, um, and he was really more positive on the, on the second time. But the, I don't know if this film quite takes over arrival, just because I think arrival is just so surgical and precise, and and the storytelling is particularly fantastic. I think from Villeneuve there, but um, Interstellar is like what in terms of experience wise, like this is a fantastic film. Like I absolutely loved the experience, and it's only after that. I kind of just wring, wring my fists in frustration um, because yes, I think it is convenient, but like maybe it earns it. Maybe it earns that convenient ending to make you feel good uh, at the end. And I think that as much as maybe there's like, if the last segment of the film is like 15 to 20 minutes long, like the first 10 to 15 minutes of that is frustrating. And then the last 15, five minutes when you get your sort of like end of dark night scene where you, you start flashing, you see McConaughey like get into the, to the, to the ranger and set off through the wormhole and try to find, Anne Hathaway and you get Anne Hathaway's character burying Edmonds and looking over the new like earth settlement like that. That shit's awesome. Like that, that's awesome. That gets me hyped. It makes me want a sequel for a film. I didn't even like the first time I watched it um, or didn't like it very much. And I think I'll, Nolan's a special kind of filmmaker that I think can, can get you to feel that way at the end of his films and also make you feel like he deserved it.
So I think moving on from that, we will jump in. I, I, I do want to go, I guess, straight to the score, actually. And Jay was talking about this, and I talked about how loud the film is. And Jay thinking that, like, Hans Zimmer was a little overbearing. Guys, I freaking love the organ. I love the organ in, as the score in this film. I think that's, like, so fun, like, so innovative, really. I don't know many other, I, I don't know other space movies have used organs before. Scott, maybe you even know better because you've seen more older space movies. I don't know if you've seen space odyssey yet i know that's on your watch list for the afi but I've you mentioned it. contact as well i haven't seen any of those films and wonder if if they if there's if han zimmer was taking notes from that but one of the things i really love about this film as loud as it was right it was was the score i think the the duo of uh, and combination of han zimmer and chris nolan here from you know starting with i can't remember if they did batman begins together if that was just james newton howard but i know he definitely came in with the dark knight and i think ever since the dark knight i mean they, they just Banger after banger of a score. I know Scott feels a little bit less positive on the inter- uh, on the Inception score, and there's no reason to revisit that. But I mean, really, like four or five movies in a row here that they just crush the score. Like the score is amazing in all of these films, and the fact that Chris Nolan didn't even share the plot or the script with Hans Zimmer. Like he gave him a one-page summary of like the setting, and Hans Zimmer makes this score, and and they work and combine to put this together. I just think is incredible, incredible, and I'd love to get your guys thoughts on it jay why don't we start with first with you this time because you mentioned that maybe you thought the score didn't quite hit the right notes for you as compared to some of their other collaborations didn't hit the right notes nice um i so i i didn't have a problem with the organ right and like i i actually thought that there were moments where like like i I found it like incredibly moving you know like a few that come to mind are like you know the beginning of the cornfield chase and the beginning of Mm. the waves crashing on the first planet um but again, like you, you hear me say like the beginning, right? Because I feel like after about 10 to 20 seconds, you know, Zimmer just turns the volume up, you know, and, and then it, it gets to a point where, yeah, like, you know, you can't hear the characters talking. And again, like I felt this more so in the theater and a little less so at home, but like. You can change you know, the volume it, at home. It's a lot easier to. Yeah. Or you can turn subtitles on like you did. Right. Yeah. But it just, it, it was t- a little too much. And then again, you know, just to. I guess we've gone full blown on spoilers, but yeah, the scene where, you know, he, uh, Matthew McConaughey is like, you know, sacrificing himself, quote unquote, um, you know, is, I, I feel like maybe it was meant to be, I mean, I, okay. You said it was mixed this way. So uh, edited this way. So I guess it wasn't meant to be, but in my mind, I would imagine it more like, I don't know, like I, I would want to hear them, you know, talking, you know, the line about the, you know, we said 90%, right? Like I can barely hear him as he's like, trying to sacrifice himself. And I feel like it would just be more moving if I wasn't just thinking, wow, this is really hard to hear right now. Yeah. And like this really, you know, emotionally powerful moment, you know, this man who's been trying so hard to like get back to his kids, you know, is, effe- is effectively like sacrificing himself, um, you know, like so that this woman can like, you know, go save the human race. Like it's just overshadowed in my mind by how loud it is. Um, and again, like that, that, that's not to knock the organ and that's not even to knock, you know, the, the actual like score. It, honestly, maybe it was just, it's just a little too loud at times. And the, it, yeah. it feels so silly to say, um, and this it, is the it affects your experience. It's not, it's not silly to say like it's to you, it's, it's blunting these like really heavily emotional moments. I don't think that's insignificant. I guess that's fair to say. And, you know, I mean, and there are plenty, there are plenty of, you know, emotional moments, as you guys have both said, you know, it's not like just these were the only ones and they were blunted, but it was, you know, I I guess I just thought, you know, there was room for more. uh, And, you know, the, the score, you know, didn't always help with that. Yeah. I feel very weird, you know, saying this about Hans Zimmer. I think this is literally the only movie of his that like, I don't absolutely love the score of, Uh, but here we are. Look, we heard it in the beginning. You're not supposed to go quiet into that, into that good night. So Scott, what did you think of the score? 
Yeah, and that's one of my favorite poems too. So that's another reason why I, I love the film. But um, yeah, no, I, I really liked it. Um, I, I do think it's a bit much in, in certain moments. I actually think the ocean scene is maybe a, a moment where it gets a little bit because you already have like the sounds of the waves you have like you know the characters yelling and everything like you don't need that added thing to accent the intensity of the scene um but but for for the most part i i do think it's good i, I mean i think that, you know again it, the crescendos at the end are, are really powerful that actually did remind me of arrival a little bit because yeah um that's true you know you have at the end of arrival you have that max max richter piece that um comes in and you know just re really adds to the to the emotional payoff of, of the film and i felt like the score did the same here in the the final stretch of this movie so i don't have too much too much bad to say about it i think yeah i i, I mean i like when composers use different in instruments i mean scott you'll know that one of my favorite scores from the last decade was what justin Hurwitz did for another space movie first man and he uses the theremin and that score really heavily, which is again not not an instrument like the organ that you really hear in movie scores and space movie scores, whatever a lot. Um, and yeah, like I, I think it, it added a nice dimension. I mean, yeah, like it, it, you don't really get that in other space movies. I mean, Space Odyssey is just literally straight up classic, famous classical music pieces that are, yeah. you know are are the the score quote unquote of the movie. Um, so yeah, like I I thought it worked. Yeah, certainly no organ in Star Wars either. <laughs> Yeah, no, I look guys like the score is awesome. I think the organ it is loud, right? Like I definitely give you that. I mean, I, again, it, it's hard to yeah. say what was the score, although I mean, at the same time, it's Chris, it is Nolan and Zimmer editing the sound together. Like they choose how loud to make these things. It's it is their choice. It's not to not to absolve them from from that decision making out of the score. It is it is their choice. But I think for me, like and, and maybe this because I haven't heard it, I, I would be curious to see how it affects the, the effect it would have in, in the theater when I can't turn the volume up and down based on the individual moments. Cause I was doing that. Like I was doing that um, when I was watching it and, but I would love to, to feel how, or at least see how I would feel differently. But for me though, Scott, you're not, you're talking about Miller's point. Like that, that didn't bother me too much. I guess my, my brain maybe just turns off and is just like so engaged in those moments where I don't think about how loud the score necessarily is. Although I'm sure I turned, I mean, I'm sure I turned the volume down in that scene. Because uh, I'm not trying to disturb my my neighbors here in my apartment complex, um, and but th but at the same time, like the organ, I just remember like the organ just it's just perfect, and it's weird because like the stereotypical place that you'd hear an organ in a film, I feel like would be like a gothic horror film, right? And like Interstellar is like the opposite of a gothic horror movie; it's like a futuristic space opera, um, but it works, like it really works. It feels like the right tone for the film, and I, and I just think it's really awesome that they're able to do that. And I think this, Scott, the point you're making about you know, the crescendos at the end with a riot for as in terms of arrival, even though that film was after this one, I guess, technically, but, um, also the, the theremin in first man, I think those are really good points that sometimes you can do experimental things right with, with space movies. Cause it's a lot about being like the unknown, right. And being afraid of the unknown. And what does that, what does that mean? And so I think that you can experiment there really effectively. And I think that Hans Zimmer and Chris Nolan experiment really effectively, uh, with this, the cinematography from Hoyt von Hoytema, I think it was can good. I just can I just say about the the yep. loud thing? I, I kind of didn't say anything about that, but I typically do watch movies with subtitles on, especially when I do when I'm watching them on my computer, which I did watch this on my computer. Um, so I I think I just maybe didn't even notice that it was loud um, mm. because like 
or, or that you couldn't even hear the dialogue in places because I just follow along with the subtitles, right? When it when it comes to the dialogue, um, so yeah, I, I do wonder if I saw it in theaters if I would have the same experience as Jay with that. But I just think yeah. I didn't even notice it because I was following along with the subtitles like I normally do. All right, we're gonna have a and, separate conversation off air about how you watch movies with subtitles on. And um, yeah, that's crazy to me. Sorry, just needed to say that. I don't want to miss on. anything. No, that was what I wanted to talk about. So go ahead. Yeah. So the cinematography from Hoyt von Hoytema. I think is is good. I think one of the, the things that probably ends up overshadowing it is just the settings themselves, right? Like the cinematography is good. I don't know if it's necessarily great. It didn't stand out to me as being uh, particularly great. And I don't think it got nominated for an Academy Award uh, for cinematography either. But I, I think it is overshadowed by the production design. And I, I do think it was nominated for production. Design. And I think because of these these different settings that you get with these planets and obviously Gargantua, the black hole and the wormhole, I think all of this is like super interestingly designed. And, you know, as you, as is usual with with Nolan, most of that is real. Like most of that is not visual effects. Like obviously the wave is visual effects, but they really like they found a place in Iceland and shot, you know, shot those like ice scenes that were they're like in ice clouds. But really, they're just on ice cliffs, obviously. But they shot that in Iceland. I think they shot the Miller's planet with like the in, in Iceland as well, because uh, Anne Hathaway like almost got hypothermia shooting that scene, apparently, because her like wetsuit wasn't insulated properly or something like that. And so like a lot of these things that look very visual effects heavy, they're practical effects, which I think is always really awesome with what Nolan is is able to accomplish uh, with that sort of stuff. Guys, I don't know if you had any more thoughts on the cinematography before we start talking about the characters. No, I mean, I think, again, because I've seen so many space movies, I feel like and even recently, too, because like I, I yeah. rewatched, I mean, Arrival again, not a space movie, whatever. Sure. But um, I you know, watched 2001, yeah. um, you know, just recently for the first time, I, I think I just like take for granted, you know, that the space visuals in a movie like this are going to be amazing. And so yeah. um, like the one, one thing that did the one part that did stand out to me was when they're going through the wormhole. I thought that that was a real like the, the visuals in that scene were just very like mystifying. Like it, it, it struck me like that that was the one moment where I thought about the science and I was like, this actually seems like it probably is, you know, I, and I have no basis for this opinion whatsoever, but this actually seems like it would be what you would see when you're looking at someone in a ship going through a wormhole or something. Um, It was, it was, it was like, again, it was mystifying. Like you're looking at it and you're almost like, you don't even understand really what you're looking at. There's like this rectangle and um, yeah, I thought it was, was really cool and not the sort of perception of, of the wormhole that I was uh, expecting to see. And maybe that I've seen in other space, you know, pieces of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, we probably don't know how things travel through a wormhole in yeah. reality, but uh, that is like how wormholes would look, right? Like that is all that is very legit. And I don't I mean, I think my understanding is that you wouldn't just pop into a wormhole and pop out immediately, right? Like here, the the I mean, they explain it in the film, right? Like they have um, Romilly or I think that's his name, Romilly explain uh, what a wormhole actually is. It's bending, bending space. Um but yeah, like I think it's it's really interesting. I think so much so much of this film is just like really interesting visuals and only taking one or two shortcuts with the science. Like the only I think actually the only shortcut they take is actually with the the dark the black hole. Right? Instead of instead of having it being black and blue, which in reality is what the the black hole that particular black hole would look like. Um, Chris Nolan just thought people would be really confused that half of the black hole was blue because of the uh, dilation around um, how fast particles are moving at that part of the black hole. Uh, there'd be uh, color dilation there. So that would 
be too confusing for people, which I think is fair. But that's like the only shortcut they took in the science uh, uh, outside of the, of course, what's inside the black hole, probably because no one knows. But Jay, what are your thoughts? Any other thoughts you want to add on the cinematography element of it? No, I mean, I, you know, I think we've, we've praised it plenty and uh, deservingly so, but it, um, you know, like knowing, and I'm sure you can speak to this a little bit better than I can, but Nolan uses hardly any CG, you know, like you said, you know, there's a lot of like on, uh, well, on location. There, there's lots of, there's lots of CG, but less than you'd expect. Sure. And like no green screen. Yeah. Right. So like, you yeah, know, he never uses green screen. That is Yeah. True. You know, which again, it's very like par for the course. I feel like these days, but you know, not for him. And you know, they, everything from, you know, building out the, the cockpit and the exterior of the ship to, you know, the onset, uh, the onset shooting, like, you know, it, it is all like pretty stunning. And again, like deserves, you know, the praise that we're heaping on it. For yeah. It's one of those things. And it's the reason, I mean, honestly, it's the reason why superhero films don't win visual effects is because they're all they're doing is shooting. Like so much of what they do is just shot against a green screen. Right. Of course, and yeah. The reason why films like 1917 would win best visual effects last year, like interstellar one best visual effects its year is that, you're mi you're mixing in really interesting and innovative ways these ideas of practical and visual effects and and one of the things that I'd be really interested in is if Chris Nolan ever worked with um, the people who do Star Wars visual effects uh, something light and sound I can't remember uh, industrial light and I can't remember what it's it's like the specific Lucasfilm branch of of um, special like visual effects division where they've created these sort of uh, where you pre you pre basically render all the visual effects and set them on a soundstage in the background. So you're not actually using a green screen. You're doing it live um, with the visuals in the background. They did it, they did it for the Mandalorian. It seems like uh, pretty interesting stuff. I think it's Industrial Light and Sound. I think that's the name of that's the name of the studio. I don't know. That Remember, familiar, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I'm just not sure. I think I'm missing like one or two words in there, but whatever. Uh, no, it's just really interesting, and there's a reason why I think people really appreciate what Nolan does is because he's. He's trying really hard to make things again as grounded and as real as possible by shooting on location in places and well not on, that's not the right way to put it not on location but shooting you know real life sets and real life things and not just shooting against a green screen which is which is really cool. But with that note, let's move on to the cast. I mentioned in my letterbox review, Jay, you wouldn't have seen it, but Scott might have. Is that um, right? Like one of the interesting parts about this film is that it's a really small cast. Like, look, I, I've said a couple names, but there's really only like five characters that matter in this film, and that seems like a departure from what we've get in a lot of the films, probably the probably the least amount of characters that matter since like the prestige or maybe even insomnia really like it, the rest of like really, truly ensemble casts. It feels like, it, and this one has Matthew McConaughey's Joe Cooper. It has Anne Hathaway's Amelia brand. It has Murph who's played by a couple different actresses. And like, those are the characters that matter. Like really? Yes. There's like other people who felt the supporting cast, but like those are the only ones that really matter. Like the endurance crew isn't really around long enough for you to care about. Matt Damon's appearance is relatively brief. And really, if you wanted to throw anyone else in, it'd be the voice actors for Tarzan case. Like those are the people ultimately in the, in the film that matter. And I think that's really interesting. And I think that speaks to what Scott was saying earlier is that what the scene is going for, or sorry, what this movie is going for something really different for Chris Nolan at the time is that he's not having these large ensemble casts. He's making it a really personal film. And as a result, you have, you know, you're getting really deeply ingrained, like involved with these characters and understanding what their motivations are and things like that. But before, why don't we jump in before we get to talk, maybe talking about at a larger level and relationships, and things like that. Why don't we talk about the individual characters and we'll start with the lead actor, Matthew McConaughey. Like I said, he was coming off true detective at the time. And that is literally what in, I, he got. Like, I think Chris Nolan saw an early um, screener of true detective and he saw what McConaughey was doing with his performance in that. And he's like, you know what? This is the person who I want to play my Joe Cooper and went and got him, convinced him to, to do it and, and did it. And Scott, I know you're a little bit skeptical about true detective, which is why I wanted to get your thoughts 
uh, on this because McC I know that you're a little bit skeptical about McConaughey's performance in True Detective and it being a little bit too heady and maybe a little bit too full of itself and and what it was trying to do. And and I and I do feel those vibes a little bit in in this film. So I'd love to get your thoughts of like, is this like just the right balance of what McConaughey was doing with True Detective and something else here, maybe a little bit more raw emotional side of things than what we were getting from there. What were your thoughts on McConaughey's performance? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe with True Detective, it's more about the the script, right? And the writing just being really this sort of philosophical, like navel gazing, like, uh, you know, balderdash in, in, in some... Uh, I couldn't disagree more, but we'll... Yeah, no, no, and that's, that's fair. It's been a long time since I watched it. I'll only watch a few episodes, but that yeah. was my perception of it at the time. Um, but I, I think this is his best performance in this movie. Like, I think that the the dimensions that he goes to, the 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 range that he shows um, is not something that we, we see in other movies. I mean, like, this is Matthew McConaughey. Like, I know he had the McConaissance or whatever, and he had Dallas Buyers Club, and he won an Oscar, and he had Mud, and he, you know, he did some really good movies um, yeah. in, in this period and more serious performances. But when you think of Matthew McConaughey, you still think of, like, the shirtless guy in the rom-coms with Kate Hudson, or you think about him and Dazed and Confused talking about, you know, all right, all right, all right. And I love high school girls and all this stuff. Like that's, that's how you think about uh, that. That is the perception of McConaughey. And so to see him just do this whopper of a performance, I think it, it's still surprising, even when you know what a good actor he can be. Um, and I think, I think he was perfectly chosen. I mean, you know, it's the scene that most people seem to talk about with his performance, but when he's watching the videos, right. When he yeah. is seeing, whatever it's been 14 years i think it is maybe that that pass or something when they're 23 when they're the, it's that long okay uh when, when they're on the first planet um when they're on miller's planet i guess and things go wrong and um you know more time passes than they had intended um and he, so he's watching the 23 years of videos from his his children and just his emotional reaction they're like i mean it's hard to not be be swept up and and to be emotionally moved yourself i mean that's just again that's not the type of mushy scene that you would normally see in a in a Nolan movie and I loved that um and so I I just think that um again the, the range is what um su surprises me and, and impresses me the most about this performance because I think you know he's got the the great dramatic chops too the scenes with, with Matt Damon there's a really sort of battle of wills going on there and I think he he stands tall with someone who is you know maybe a more established dramatic actor in, in Matt Damon. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I really don't have a bad thing to say about his performance. I loved it. I loved his character and he had his emotional hooks in me all the way to the end. Um, and so I, I think he's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, like he really does span the full gamut and I think he, he hits the notes of like this really frustrated guy on earth. who's like, I mean, they even kind of say it on the nose a little bit. Like John goes, like you're born either 40, 40 years too early or forty years too late. I'm not sure which it was, but like you're in the wrong time. And I think that McConaughey like really embodies that in the first part of the film. And then when he's like doing what he feels like he's meant to do, he's like it's like it's just so clear he's so passionate about it. But at the same time, you have this scene where he gets back and he, you know, it's been a couple hours, even like I don't know, a couple hours for him, right? But twenty three years are gone, and he has to watch literally like in front of his eyes his his son grow up. And then get the message from Murph as, as well and see her 23 years and, later. And it's pretty brutal. And I mean, at the end, too, right? When when he is, you know, makes, putting stay on the floor and like, you know, communicating to her from this other dimension, um, he 
like if you watch the scene in isolation, right? If you if you just see the scene of him like yelling, you know, Murph, like don't yeah. don't leave, like turn around or whatever he is, it is that he's screaming or whatever. You would be like, oh yeah, there goes McConaughey again. Like if you just yeah. watch that scene in isolation. But again, when you've seen his performance, when you've seen his emotional journey over the the course of the movie, you realize, hey, he's actually doing something really good here. This isn't you know the sort of flat one note um type of thing that maybe you 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 would think if you were just watching this one scene and we're going off of maybe your pre-existing notions of McConaughey. yeah no, i think that's that's definitely definitely true and i think one of the things going back to the score here is that it really benefits is that one thing that i think probably just blew every space movie before out of the water was something you were mentioning earlier with first man that cinematography there just how cla how good and claustrophobic that was i mean interstellar does this at times too and i think in those moments I think McConaughey does really well with those as well. When you get those like really up claustrophobic shots, looking up at his face and uh, you can like just really see the intensity and focus going back to the passion part that I was saying. And I think that um, even though it doesn't have as much of that as first man did, because it feels like that entire movie was shot uh, super claustrophobically yeah. with Ryan Gosling. But the moments that this does that um, is, is really, are really cool. But Jay, what are your thoughts on McConaughey's performance and, and Coop as a character? They're they're high. Um, I I mean again, you, you said a lot of it, and you know I'll, I'll echo some of that. Um, you know he he hits all the right notes. You know the I, I won't even wait to the end to say it. You know I think my favorite scene in this movie yeah. is him watching uh, the video of his kids, which I, again like I feel like I know plenty of people that also kind of like laugh at that. You know or like you know the, I guess like the the gif right or gif whatever you want to call it. Um, you know of that is like so like cavalierly used. But, yeah, like, it's me, too like, meaningful. Yeah, sure, but like I've I've really like. I don't think I've ever ex like experienced like you know tragedy like in a film like that way ever. Like I think I think it was just, like it was just completely different than like any characters like loss that we've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and and I thought he brought it. And at the same time, you know, like he can also be this like stubborn, witty, funny guy when he's you know telling the, one of the teachers at Murph School, you know, that it takes two numbers to measure your rear, but only one to measure my son's future. You know, or his like verbal sparring with Tars. You know, like he. I mean, he just brings it across the board, and honestly, like weirdly, he I'd kind of just missed his movies until I'd seen this one. Um, I think it was the first like big role of his that I'd seen, uh, and you know, it, it it brought me on the bandwagon. You know, he he does a great job just across the board. Yeah, I think that's a good point too about that. We haven't seen this sort of loss before in a movie like we haven't ever seen this kind of thing portrayed before, where you're talking about this this father who. You know, he had he goes onto this planet for what, like a couple hours, maybe uh, on his time. And he comes back and like, you know, a quarter of his children's life is gone. And like like to, to process all of that is just like I, I like I can't even imagine what that would be like to emotionally process to realize, hey, like in these two hours, like like my children's life has progressed beyond like I, I don't I don't even know but they're old uh, they're older than he is now yeah um like that that's just well that's not quite right but anyway keep going I feel like that would just break your brain and break you emotionally right and then that's obviously what we see in the scene and we see it with with Anne Hathaway's character too right when she's watching videos of of her dad um and him sending her messages she gets affected too and uh, yeah, it, it is. It is crazy that Michael Caine looks the exact same after 23 years or whatever he as he did in the base. Um, but then all of a sudden it's like, 
oh, he's dying because I guess he's he's supposed to be really old, even though he looks the exact same the whole time. But they anyway. just needed Christopher Plummer to come in and, and yeah. be the older version of Michael Caine. Um, yeah, no, look, I, I think uh, it, it is really hard to fathom. <laughs> they almost gloss over it in the last part, right? I mean, obviously you get it when at the very end, but when they do the slingshot around Gargantua, that's over 50 years gone yeah. right there. Like, you don't really get to feel the effects of that in the same way because really after that happens, it's just like you get spit back well, out and it's the end of the movie, but... Yeah, I mean, uh, and, and you do get the end scene, obviously, in the hospital, which I think is like... That's a great scene. Oh, yeah, I mean, that... I, I cried during that part, I'll, I'll just say, because, like, yeah, for, for him to, like sit there and and see you know her like literally on on her la in her last days and like finally they're reunited but there's there's the sense like i love the way that the scene is played of like her telling him permission to leave yeah like she she basically tells him to go and so there's there's like this cathartic moment of like they're being reunited after all this time but then he's grounding you in the fact that look he wasn't ever really a part of her life like even though like they you know, they had this moment. He helped her to, you know, to to save the world or whatever and be, become who she became. Like, he, you know, Brand and Anne Hathaway's character is more a part of his life than she is. And that's why she tells him, look, go be with her. That's the person who, like, is a part of your life. Like, I I wasn't. Like, uh, you know, the, and that, that is, so there is a sadness to it, which I think reflects yeah. what you have seen throughout the, the movie as well. Yeah, and it says it, it states it kind of just, it, it, it puts it out there in the ether. It's like parents are not supposed to watch their children die. And that's, yeah. and that can be used in so many different contexts, right? But especially in this context where the parent is 60 years, 50 years younger mm -hmm. than the child now. It's like some weird freaking Benjamin Button crap or something there. This movie for dealing with relativity in a way that like if no other movie has, right? Yeah. It's super yeah. well done. God damn you, Kip Thorne. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it really, it really nails the science aspect of it, which is Im impressive. And the fact that Nolan wants to commit to that science and wants to write a story that is, you know, honest about that science is, is maybe admirable and is able to create such an emotional story out of something real like that, right? like science and emotion, those things aren't supposed to go together. Um, so it's like, you don't have to violate uh, the two of them to, to not get the payoff for both. Uh, which is yeah. super interesting. And I think overall, it's a it's a really strong performance. I mean, look, I, honestly, I don't really care for McConaughey's movies all that much. I mean, especially if you go since Interstellar, because Dallas Buyers Club, I believe, was like either at the same time or immediately after Interstellar. It might have been. It was the year before, I believe. I think it was 2013. It was 2013. Yeah, yeah. and and I misspoke earlier. It actually wasn't True Detective that um, that Chris Nolan saw. It was it was a an early screen of Mud that he saw that convinced now that him. that's a really good movie. Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah. So I, there was the McConaughey and this was certainly a part of it. I, I just don't know how much good stuff McConaughey did since then. Cause like the last two movies that I've seen with McConaughey are serenity and the gentleman. And they're both trash <laughs> for McConaughey. Right, um, yeah. So he needs to reconjure the, his like early 2010s to really find, find his way back to uh to good performances because this was great this is a great performance and overall and um you know you guys both mentioned brand or at least scott did as someone else who you know is really kind of an emotional rock uh, maybe rock's not the right word but a, an emotional focal point of of the film and you get i think a lot of different notes although to slightly different degrees over the course of the film from her but as someone who had worked with Nolan before, she was obviously in Dark Knight Rises, and we alluded to this film uh, going forward uh, in that, is that she gets her second round with Nolan. She might have a little bit more to do in this film. In fact, 
definitely, in my opinion, has a lot more to do with this film. But do you think what she has to do is worthwhile? And does it work for you guys? What did you think of Anne Hathaway? Uh, Scott, we'll go with you first. Yeah, I thought she was great. Um, I, I think, you know, second Nolan movie in a row here, I guess, where we're talking about how good she is. And um, I, I, th- I think, uh, you know, she, she maybe is even better here. Like, I like that this character is positioned as kind of a foil for um, for McConaughey's character, right? Because she she doesn't she hasn't experienced the same loss in in the way that he has, like, because you know, she's gotten to grow up with her father and, um, you know, she's, she's had a relationship for him for her, her whole life or whatever. So she kind of doesn't quite get it maybe when, when McConaughey is, is breaking down, um, at seeing his children or whatever. And, you know, they, they have conversations about it. And, um, and so I, I like that she, she, basically she has to go on her own journey, uh, you know, throughout the movie to, you know, tap into her sort of her own emotion. And the, you know, the, the crescendo of that is that, um, well, she, she loses her father, obviously, but then McConaughey, like, right, who has experienced more loss than she has, it seems like, is the one, and who has, who has uh, more to lose by, like, saying, hey, I'm going to go, I'm going to go into the black hole and, you know, lose 50 years or whatever. Like, he has more to lose. Like, he, he probably won't see his children again. I mean, it had to be his thought when he, when he did that. Um, has has more to lose than she does, and, and but you know her seeing that he is willing to sacrifice um, that in order you know for her for her and for you know the whole human race I think kind of reshapes her her you know emotional state and you know at the end right like she she has to undergo a loss of her own when she realizes that Edmonds who was you know, sort of her her lover has passed away and so I like her journey from being sort of the determined like mission put the mission before everything person yeah. how she is in in the first part of the movie to um having to realize the the role that people and that emotion have actually played in her life when she sees like these you know huge moments happening in front of her like mcconaughey sacrificing um you know his time with his kids and yeah. her her you know lover dying like i, I think uh I really bought into her emotional journey. And I think that's what makes this a good female character because she actually has something to do. She actually has an emotional journey to go on of her own and that it is different from the one that we see Cooper going on. Um, And and so I think, I think he gets it right. Finally. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the interesting parts about this character is that it, as you say all that, and I think I think that it is all very true and ultimately my take, but it does add an element of questioning her motives into part of this film as well. Like, yes, she's the objective scientist, but when Matt, you know, McConaughey, when Coop discovers that she is in love with Edmonds, it adds this element of like, well, is she actually just doing this to get back to him? And I think that, I don't think this is any sort of meta narrative here, but I think it's really interesting because I don't think Nolan answers that question about whether or not she's being objective or not and leaves it up for you to decide. Cause she says, yes, it is true that the possibility that I will see Edmonds again is tantalizing, but I still think that this is this would be the right call. It's not the call they ultimately go with because they are questioning her motive so much around whether like the reason to go to that planet and they go to man's planet instead. But I think it's interesting that Nolan there is kind of offering a a I think a very real critique. And I'm I'm being a little bit a little bit hesitant here because I, I really just don't know his, his 
real motive behind this and uh, other than obviously just kind of adding suspense and making it tough to make a decision here. But um, I think it is a real stereotype that, you know, women are the emotional ones and, you know, you can't trust their decision making mm -hmm. and emotions are involved because that is that is literally what happens on screen. Like you see McConaughey and Romilly say, you know what, you may be right, you may be wrong, and we can't trust you because and of that. And she was right, right? And if they yeah. had gone to the planet, then yep. they could have avoided so much. Like, so that, there's yep. something there. Romilly wouldn't have died. And they, and I don't know what, the, it, it, would have been, it would have been a different movie. Yeah. It would have been a different movie. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I don't think that's a really interesting point because I, I don't know whether Nolan was doing that on purpose or not. But it was really interesting to see it play out that way when you have these, you know, these two men questioning a woman's uh, ability to objectively analyze a situation when emotions were involved um and, and so I, and, and sorry and just to jump it like the same thing is almost going on in the ground with jessica chastain's character too right like the, she yeah. she like her emotions are involved obviously because it's it's her father up there um but you know she she is the one who has kind of determined that hey he is coming back or whatever even though everyone yeah. else all of the other i guess men on the ground are telling and i mean her brother too is like yeah. no you need to get over this this is this is delusional he's not coming back look i don't have a bad thing to say about timothy chalamet but i don't know anyone who would trust casey affleck saying anything so <laughs> there's that yeah you could just imagine how triggered that the like ladies on film twitter were about the fact that their their love timothy chalamet turned into casey affleck a yeah. horrible abuser casey affleck yeah yeah i was i was actually thinking that as i was watching the movie because this i mean when i saw this movie originally i, so I didn't know who timothy chalamet was obviously and uh casey affleck uh wasn't i mean he wasn't getting all the crap that he was getting because he hadn't he hadn't won the oscar yet uh for manchester by the sea and yeah anyway anyway yeah i think that to go back to go back to anne hathaway i think it's a, a really interesting performance and, I, and i'll have plenty more to say about jessica chastain's performance but jay get in here you've been silent what do you think of uh, anna hathaway i thought she was great um no I, I was really curious to hear what you guys had to say especially about the 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 the, the objectivity of decision making piece right that you guys yeah. talked about because that's probably the few minutes where like you know he, uh nolan really starts to like lose me a little bit because you know you have anna hathaway you know kind of giving this speech on love you know before she talks about you know how it's not a necessarily affecting her objectivity but you know she's like you know giving this whole speech on how love you know you maybe can love we just don't know what's important 10 years yeah, yeah and it just you know it, that that like I, I like wrote the timestamp down because i'm like this is where the movie starts to lose me it's first like you know this mm. thing happens in hathaway and again like maybe it was meant to create suspense and whatever but you know given his like record you know as we've discussed at length like it, that yeah. you know about how he treats his like female characters that didn't really sit well with me um, yeah, I get that too, because that's kind of what I was thinking is that I don't think in isolation, I would feel that way about Nolan. Or I wouldn't think that, but because we've been watching the movies in the order, we, you know, in chronological order and been talking about this topic, I mean, every, every single episode, it was, it was in my mind when I was watching that scene. Sure. And like, I, you know, again, I want to say like you guys have, you know, like credit where credit is due. Like he definitely gets it right on the whole, you know, with her character and, you know, with Murph again, like, you know, being the scientist that cracks it, albeit with, you know, uh, Coop's help and whatnot, but like. You know, the, yeah. the it, it's certainly a step forward. And, you know, just to, you know, give Anne Hathaway her chops, like, you know, she she kills it. It, it yeah. honestly, like, so I think I mentioned this, you know, I've never been like super high on her, but like this might be my favorite role of hers. Weirdly. Don't worry. I'm I'm a noted Anne Hathaway hater. So uh, you got to watch Ocean's 8. She's so I was good. just about to make that joke. Um, <laughs> Have you seen Ocean's 8? Yeah. 
yeah scott I'm scott, scott loves that performance because it's She's like a, it's a meta narrative on her as like the persona of anne hathaway right yeah. just like be yourself <laughs> yeah it's great but, yeah um, no she, she as a side note part. watch hustlers and see what you think about anne hathaway then oh what she's not in that yeah she is isn't that's her oh it's the hustle her and her and rebel wilson yeah yeah not, i was like hustlers what <laughs> not hustlers not the j-lo movie yeah yeah go ahead no. sorry jay no, just watch this movie and you'll like her. She yes, she you know, really brings it home. Watch Dark Knight Rises too. You'll like her there too. I mean, um, yeah, fair point. I, I, I like her in this one more, actually. Well, like I said, she has a lot more to do in this film. Sure. Uh, even though we weren't super, we weren't super negative on on that aspect of Dark Knight Rises, but no, she definitely we has more to do. Yeah. Were we? I don't actually. Relative to other Nolan movies, I didn't feel like we were that negative on Catwoman, but maybe we were. It, I, it was, I think it was mostly the ending, right? Like just the the forced kiss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that one scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one scene. That's true. No one couldn't help himself, but he helped himself in this scene. Maybe like it. Yeah. Jessica so, Chastain still had her had her male moment, so it's fine. And on that note, why don't we just go talk about Jessica Chastain and Mackenzie Foy to the extent that it's relevant? Um, Jessica Chastain here, like she obviously got super famous for Zero Dark Thirty, which was several years before that. I mean, she was super famous before that too, but uh, that was like a big hit for her um, coming into this film. I thought it was super interesting. I mean. Really, my philosophy on all films is that if you have if you're casting Jessica Chastain, you probably could have cast Amy Adams and it would have been great. And at the same time, I think that Jessica Chastain still does a really good job here. Although I think if you had to like compare the two female performances, she has like a little bit less. And I definitely have some question marks around this character as a whole and is one of the other parts of the movie that I that gives me pause outside of the couple that I already mentioned in my general impressions. But before I talk about those, Jay, we'll go to you first this time. What did you think of Jessica Chastain? What did you think of Mackenzie Foy? What did you think of Murph as a character? No, I mean, I think they both did a good job. Um, you know, the thing that doesn't sit well with me, like the young Murph, and again, like, you know, you, you can argue like she was a kid and trauma and whatever, but like, you know, the fact yeah. that, you know, she is so able to hold a grudge, right? Like, you know, like just not at all willing to like talk to your dad who has gone to space. And I, I know you're like clinging to this, you know, notion that you might come back, you know, like it was hard, you know, because again, like it's really hard to like, because we talked so much about how, you know, Nolan like treats his female characters. It was hard not to be like, Oh, look, like, you know, you're holding a grudge. You're being so emotional. You're not coming to the phone. Yada, yada. Um, you know, but then there's that, you know, the video that we get after the, the 23 year time gap, you know, where she's talking about how, you know, like this, this is how old you were when you said you'd come back and we were going to compare our watches. And like, again, like, you know, that, that scene like hit really hard. And so, you know, like all in all, you know, like I like, I like Murph as a character, like, you know, we don't really get to see the, like the the trajectory so much right because like yeah. we only just see her at like a few very specific points but yeah. even those like are enough for me you know like right down to the end where you know like I, I didn't cry in the final scene you know like you guys did but i you know definitely like i, I was moved you know like it, where it was you know the, and it's that line like you said you know you know no parent should have to watch uh his child die you know like it was, it was great um yeah you know we we, we lack the trajectory but you know we, we got like the the important moments and i thought that was really cool yeah scott what did you think yeah i mean look i i think jessica chastain i i mean i do think amy adams is better if we're just going to be comparing ginger actresses but i i think that um thank you i i think the the thing about jessica chastain is that she kind of does the same thing in most of her roles right like sure. I, I don't think there's a lot of diversity of role in her filmography she is the she's a badass woman though she, she's right, a badass right. woman well, in yeah, her film. She's, yeah, yeah she has that exterior but then there is also like an emotional part i mean like, if you think about molly's game or whatever like yes that is totally her facade or whatever but then there are there are moments in molly's game and there are moments in this movie where that really gets broken down and we see you know that there's vulnerability underneath yeah. um, x-men but, dark phoenix though 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> that, that let's not even go back to her character in that, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but like, I think she does it really well, right? Like yeah. that's the thing. Like she may, maybe she only does one thing, but she, she does it super well. And I think it's, it's well suited to the role of Murph here. And I mean, yeah, like, I, again, I, I think that the way that he subverts, you know, that the fact that she has such an emotional stake in it. Right. And, and again, like, like you said, Scott, that, that is playing off, you know, perception of women as being overly emotional and maybe not uh, particularly in the realm of science, right? P perhaps not being well suited to the field of science, right? There's this whole women in STEM movement that, you know, has been going on for, for a while now. But, um, I, and I think Nolan kind of, turn you know, turns that on his head because, he, you know, the whole movie, I think, is about how there is room for emotion in science. There's room for, you know, emotion in this, you know, purportedly objective field um yeah. and and i think that you know this this character is is a great example of that and you know the fact that she is so strong in her convictions and that those convictions are confirmed in the end because um because mcconaughey you know he he does come back he does you know leave her the message he is her ghost and yeah. because of that she is the one who is able to to save the world that you know Again, you can look at it as like, oh, well, she only did it because of him or whatever. But I, I don't really think that that's true. Again, she it was yeah. because of her faith that she discovered the message in the first place. And like she is ultimately the one who gives them the information and gets again, gets the whatever Save it is. Her gets named after her at the end uh, i i i really liked that moment or whatever oh yeah that was like, hilarious oh, named after me and they're like no it's named after your daughter and i yeah. was like um so yeah that that, that was good I, I mean and i think Mackenzie foy was strong too i, I i'm surprised we haven't seen her in more stuff because i think she was good yeah i was i was actually thinking about that I was like how did she not get cast in stranger things i mean where where mm. were the people casting <laughs> the kids yeah. how is she not an it i guess i guess they had sophie lillis who who took the ginger the ginger role in in, uh, in in the it movies? But uh, no, I think she Mackenzie Foy is is really good and, and believable. Right, like I can totally see like nine year old or ten year old Murph, however however old she is, um, in the in, uh, in twenty sixty seven. I can see her getting like so frustrated with her dad because like she told like she looks up to her dad so much, and not that Tom doesn't. It's not that Timothy Chalamet character doesn't, but she looks up to him in a way that's different than what than what Tom is doing. Like Tom just wants to be like his dad, right? Like Mackenzie Foy wants to like be with and learn from her dad. Like it's so like that relationship is so tight. Like he takes her everywhere. He stands up for her in school. I mean, we briefly mentioned that scene earlier where, where he has that conversation, like the parent teacher conference with, with the school teachers and principal David O. Yellow. O. Yeah. yeah I was like, why, this, why is he in this film? Where did this come from? Um, yeah, no, that, that is, that was an interesting scene. I, I got a lot of good laughs out of that scene actually. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I think that Jessica Chastain is good. And, what I was alluding to earlier to add something new to the conversation is that, and I think kind of maybe even in, in contradiction to what you were saying, Scott, is that I, I, I was a little bit confused about Murph as a character and what she really thought about her dad. Like, does she, does she really believe he's coming back? Like you don't get the, to, to Jay's point here, like you don't get the development over time of the character. You don't really see the progress of what this character's like emotional journey is from 10 years old to, mid thirties, right. Or whatever age it is in, in like the after Miller's planet time. And so I think what I was left a little bit confused with is like, why does she care about this stuff in her room? Like she hasn't talked to her dad or hasn't made an attempt to reach out to her dad for 20 plus years. 
And now all of a sudden she sends him this message like, you're not here. You're not coming back. I've accepted that or whatever. And yet she's still like trying to like mess around the stuff in her room. She's like putting the pieces together around like, oh, like you're my ghost. Like you wrote stay. You didn't know that this was a trap. Like Professor Brand didn't tell you these things. And that's why you're trying to say stay. Don't leave. Like you're my ghost. Like to me, it just feels a little bit hard to connect all those dots on your own. And I think the movie really requires you to take a leap of faith. And this isn't anything as Jessica Chastain's performance. Cause like I said, I think it's pretty, I think it's, a, it's a, maybe to your point, Scott, maybe it's a, an on par performance, what you expect from Jessica Chastain in terms of what she's delivering, but it's a good performance. Like it's, it's, it's good enough. It gets the job done. And it's just the character here. I'm like a little bit lost on how to connect the dots from 10 year old Murph to never talking to her dad for 23 years to leaving this message. And all of a sudden caring about whether or not her dad's going to come back, even though she's ostensibly stated that he's not coming back. So I, I had a little bit of trouble connecting those dots. And I think it's even bigger than the convenient ending. I find it hard to connect those dots. Yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know. I guess I look at like Brand's, Dr. Brand's death, maybe as being like the inciting event in a way of like her reflecting on her own relationship with her father as she is having to send this message to to Anne Hathaway and tell her, hey, your your dad has passed away. And, you know, that that is causing her to reflect about her own relationship and like, I mean, but she's I, I, reflecting with hostility, though, because she's accusing them of having abandoned them on Earth in that exact message. Yeah, but I don't know. I just feel like what you know, she gets involved with this whole project, right? Like that's what she yeah. grows up to do. Because yeah. I think there is some part of her that still believes he's coming back, and I mean, that's why that's why she she goes back to the room one more time because she thinks there's there's something that I missed, like the the father that I knew and that that I believe in, and like again love is the strongest force of all i guess and uh, yeah. in the moment that is sort of what is consuming her what's um, inside a black hole it's love yeah exactly um and so i i bought it i guess yeah jay what do, what do you think about this point because this this one is this one is one that, that stuck with me a little bit the trajectory or that love is what's inside a black hole <laughs> well not not the latter the first part <laughs> no i mean like i i think i touched on it and i think you know you you articulated it well is you know i i think you I guess like Scott Harvey, to your credit, like I hadn't really too actively thought about the fact that like, oh yeah, like she went on to like work in like, you know, I don't even know what you'd call it. She like, followed in her dad's footsteps. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she did. And, yeah. yeah. And like, you know, that that's, I guess that's something I kind of just took for granted. It wasn't something I'd really thought about. And I guess, you know, if you, if you take a second to think about it, you maybe do kind of fill in the gaps that Scott Shelton, you and I were kind of, you know, saying might've been missing. Um, well, like you get the, I think, I think it, it connects the dots in the anger that you see, right? Well, like when she thinks that she's been like her dad left her, like, her, they, like he abandoned her to like save himself, basically. Like that's, that's like the raw emotion coming out of brand of professor brand telling her and, you know, telling her that, Hey, you know, I lied the whole time. Um, and not telling her whether or not, uh, his daughter and, and her dad knew that. And I think that you can, you can definitely connect those dots to the anger, right? Like I totally get that. Is it maybe it's just part of reckoning with that anger, right? Maybe it's part of just like, is this really possible that my dad would do this to me? Is it really possible that you know the 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 coop that I knew my dad would do this? Maybe that's how you get there. But I guess for me, I just didn't connect it. It, it wasn't easy for me to do. Was is what I'll say. Yeah, yeah, but it's there. I mean, right? Like that is that is what happens. It is what it is. But yeah, I think I know we're running uh, running long already. So. I want to add an et all into here because other characters and the more supporting characters in the role. Uh, what I want to talk about is 
you know, I was pretty in our last countdown series. I talked about how much I loved BB eight guys. I had forgotten how much I freaking love Tarzan cases. These guys are freaking awesome. I love the design. I think it's really cool. I mean, part of the reason why I think that Miller's planet scene is so cool too, is like Tars just goes like total like car mode and like starts spinning through the water. I mean, that's so cool. Um, I loved it. And I thought the voice performances from Bill Irwin who voices Tars and Josh Stewart, who voices case are pretty effective for like being robots. Right. But also adding a little bit of extra, like something extra to those performances. And um, I love, I like, I loved these two robots. What did you guys think? I wasn't as high on the design. Um, Get out of here. You're canceled. I, I, I know. I'm you. sorry. I know you okay. should cancel me. It looks so impractical. I'm so sorry. Like it just, I don't know. BB eight looks cool. They don't, but, but they were hilarious as well. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the voice performances, like, you know, they really brought it. I forgot how much I love Tars too. I'll be honest. Like yeah. I, again, in the years it's been since I've seen this movie, I wasn't, yeah. I didn't come into this, like, you know, remembering how funny I thought he was. Um, I definitely, I don't think I'll forget anytime soon this time. Yeah. I'd forgotten that Tars makes it out in the end and they get, they, uh, they make it back and, and go on another adventure together. And I thought that was awesome. But yeah, look, BB-8, I mean, BB-8 still the goat, but that's, yeah. Tarzan case are pretty good. Scott, what did you think? Yeah, I think this is one of the points where the movie is like the, clearly inspired by 2001 because, okay. um, but in a, as a counterpoint to 2001, because obviously the, you know, the sort of main antagonist, I guess, in, in 2001 is this, you know, humanized computer. Yeah. Yeah. 9000. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so I think that they are, you know, Nolan is deliberately providing a counterpoint to that by having these, um, you know, two robots that are actually really, you know, great and like supportive to the team yeah. and, uh, you know, showing the other side of, hey, not all not all computers are bad. Not all, you know, of this future technology is going to kill all of us. And so I liked that, um, you know, sort of spin on that. And I thought that the voice performances were cool because they were so human right like they didn't try to do like a detached robot voice really for the you know the computers of like hi i'm you know hal 9000 or whatever like they they didn't yeah. do that because like that is what we have now right like that they didn't is, do c3po they didn't they do anthony didn't do like siri or alexa because that is what we have now and i feel like in the future in 30 years or whenever the robots that are going to be created or you know the ai that are going to be created are going to probably be even more human-like than they are now and sound more like Tars and Case do in this movie. Yeah, guys, who, who else do you want to talk about, if, if anyone else? I mean, there are... I said that there are only a few main people, but there are another, enough cast members that we haven't talked about, too, to, to mention others if you'd like. Scott, anyone you want to point to? I mean, yeah, Topher Grace is a wet blanket in this. Like, he he literally is the character... He, he literally is the... Not a compliment, Jay. Of uh, you know, he he's there to provide like exposition. He's there to ask Jessica Chastain questions about like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Blah 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 blah. blah. Um, and you know, get get her to offer some exposition up or whatever. And then at the end, you know, he's just there like yelling, "Come on, kill it! We gotta go! Let's go!" Like he's completely useless. I felt Dude, like he's got a tire iron at the end. That he's, um, ready, he's ready to take on Casey Affleck. Yeah. Which uh, you know, in retrospect. I'm sure uh, us and most women are appreciative that Topher Grace will take a tire iron to Casey Affleck, but there yeah. you go. Uh, and then, I mean, Matt Damon, like, he's good. I, I mean, I think he's good. But he does have, like, the 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 worst exchange of dialogue in the movie does involve his character, right? Because the, the Lazarus project or whatever is, like, the 
yeah, I think it's like the name of the the project or whatever. Yeah. Um, Lazarus has some role in there. And so there's this moment, right, where he has been woken up from the cryo freeze or whatever. And he's talking about how he, you know, the last time he laid down, he set it to where he wouldn't wake up. And you and, literally raised me from well, the dead. I, yeah. There's that. So like I stopped at that line and I was like, OK, I get it. It's like Lazarus, right? Like he's been raised from there. Like you get it right there from that line. And but then, so then he goes on and he says, you literally raised me from the dead. And I was like, oh, come on, that wasn't necessary. And then as if it wasn't already <laughs> enough, McConaughey just goes, Lazarus. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? Yeah, that, that was probably the worst moment in the entire yeah, film. Like, that, that is the moment where he just like spells it all. And that, that was the moment where I was like, crap, maybe he does like uh, offer up too much like exposition. But no, I, I, I think that that is the exception rather than the rule in this movie, thankfully. Look, not everyone's not everyone's read the New Testament. I'll just be <laughs> yeah. But I mean, even when you say he literally raised me from the dead, like at that point you should get it. Like, yeah, especially since they said it earlier in the movie as well. Yeah. Okay, anyone else you want to talk about here? Uh, it's any of the endurance Michael crew. Okay, right? We haven't talked about David Jayasi or whoever. No, I mean, they, I mean, they they were good. You know, I I honestly don't have too much. Uh, to say right like I, th I think as the movie goes on and even you know as the days go by as i've seen this like i kind of do forget it is always good to see michael kane if nothing else even for a few minutes i don't know what is that like six straight movies we've seen him in yeah sounds right so, not in dunkirk though not in dunkirk though no he um, got kenneth Branagh. he upgraded to a slightly younger british person to play his like older older statesman i could have seen him playing the mark rylance role but we'll get to that yeah that's probably true that's probably true all right guys i think moving on from that i do want to talk about like sort of the the visual effects the settings the production design we touched on it briefly when we were talking about earlier with the cinematography but uh we and we talked about the practical mix of practical and visual effects but um uh, maybe it's just my love for some of these planet designs i think it's really cool like we talked about all the planets when we talked about star wars i don't know like just because it's one movie versus 10 or 11 probably it's a little bit different but and some of these planets are just really cool like i i know that i mean i talked about the different scientific liberties. Some people have pointed out that it's probably not possible to have ice clouds because they wouldn't structurally support like gravity would take them down. Um, so that's probably one of the other times where it takes a little bit of liberty with science. But overall, I think these planet designs are really interesting. Uh, I mean, certainly the, the vision and the ingenuity around just paying for a black hole like Gargantua is pretty cool. Uh, Scott, you mentioned the wormhole earlier being interesting. Guys, any other thoughts on the visual effects, which are, uh, in my opinion, pretty stunning? I mean, I would just reiterate that, like, they are stunning, but I don't know, because I've just seen so many stunning space sci-fi movies or whatever recently, I think I, I maybe took that for granted a little bit uh, and, and didn't pay uh, close attention to them, perhaps. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the worlds are cool. Like, the giant wave is something, like, I've never seen in a movie really before. And I, I um, wish I could go back and not know that's happening on that, because mm -hmm. I remember the first time when I was watching <laughs> And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. There's really no other reaction to have other than that. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think the the, the the visuals work. The worlds are immersive. I, I, I thought they were good. Yeah. Jay, what do you think? Anything else to add? No, agreed. Again, you know, I, I wish I could, you know, if I could forget one bit of the movie, it would definitely be, you know, those aren't mountains. Those are waves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, like we've said, you know, it, it's, it's remarkable how much of this he can do with minimal CG, no green screens. You know, even the like, you know, representation of higher dimensions and dimensions we can comprehend, you know, it, it all like, you know, just really visually stunning. 
Yeah. Is is the black hole your real Tesseract, Jay? Are you willing to forgo the Tesseract in the MCU? Oh my god, stop. No, no, no movie. I'm so, like this is I'm, that word has been ruined for me. No no movie can use that word without me thinking, no, stop it. <laughs> I'm completely yeah. serious right now. And maybe maybe that's you know, I'm damaged goods in that way, but you just you just can't use that word around me anymore. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I guess before we move on to the plot points, I do want to talk, like, look, as, as awesome as the visual effects are and the setting and the design of, of Miller's planet, one of the things that always confuses me is that do they really not think about the fact that this, because they state before they go to the planet that it's going to be, you know, one hour is like seven years or eight years or whatever they say it is uh, on the planet. And they, did they really not think about the fact that it only been like 10 or 11 years since uh, Miller got down there and started broadcasting? Like Miller's only been down there for like half an hour. Or like an hour and a half or whatever it is um, uh, and their time. And I think it's always really funny when I think about it on there. And, and you do get a, a brief mention of it in this like really heated exchange between McConaughey and Hathaway after they are able to escape the planet about how um, Miller probably died like seven minutes before they got there. That's like pretty crazy uh, yeah. to think about. Like, And if they'd only just noticed that that mountain right behind them is just slowly getting smaller <laughs> right, after, right after they land, that things would have been different. But I think in the moment too, as skeptical as I am about that, I think you, because of everything, I think you can still understand why they might have overlooked that that notion because it's like, oh, it's a planet that we might be able to inhabit. Um, they're not really thinking through those things because it's the gold mine they're looking for, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, a final thought on, on Miller's planet before we switch gears and talk about the plot themes. And why don't we go to that relationship, which I think really drives uh, McConaughey's character for a lot of them, drives Murph's character, uh, sorry, uh, Jessica Chastain's character and Murph uh, is that, and that's the relationship between the two of them. I mentioned my difficulty maybe connecting the dots at certain points, but I think there's plenty of other really like fertile ground for pointing out, especially with the younger Murph and the relationship there as as McConaughey uh, Coop leaves leaves them behind to fulfill his destiny as this person who maybe saves humanity. I don't know, um, but guys, Scott, we'll go to you first here. What about like? You mentioned and you've been really open about like you think that the women, the female characters in this like are much better, much stronger. Is this relationship a part of that or is this relationship an exception to that rule? I think it's a part of it because I think like there's a give and take from both characters. Like I think that McConaughey has to acknowledge that, hey, I actually lost a lot. Like, okay, maybe I, I ultimately saved the human race and that's a good thing. That's what I set out to set out to do or whatever. And yeah, maybe if you're looking at this from a utilitarian perspective or whatever, I did the right thing because I saved the the maximum number of people. But like in the end, when he is confronted with Murph there on her hospital bed, I think he he does have to reflect upon everything that he he has lost and like you know wh- whether it was actually worth it, you know, to to go through all of this to like save humanity for generations that he won't live to see probably, right? Like he. Th- you know what the impact of what he did is mainly going to be felt after he's gone probably um and you know and not giving to getting to have the fulfilling life with um you know his daughter and his family that he he does care about and you know has to comes to realize how much he cares about them over the course of the movie but i think you know the the same thing for the for the chastain character even though yes she is she is ultimately right about um you know, the fact that her father was coming back, she gets to sort of save the day and save humanity. Um, I think she, she also, and she gets to be reunited with her father. I think she also has to like surrender the idea that, yeah, maybe to some extent, again, looking at it from that objective perspective, maybe her father did do the right thing. And, um, 
in the moment it seemed like he he didn't care about her and he was just abandoning her or whatever but um what he what he has done is not only to make her life better but make you know lives better for her descendants and for for future generations and everything and so i i think that you know both characters have to undergo their own journey in in the movie and so that's what i liked you know compared to the the portrayal of um you know female characters in other movies where they you know they're kind of just there like the ellen page character in inception or they're there to be specifically just to be like romantic interests like i think rachel dawes was in the the batman movie so we see a clear departure from that in two characters here um whoa even even if they are you know maybe teasing like that mcconaughey and Anne Hathaway are going to get together in the end that's not like an important part of the movie um so it was good. Yeah, maybe they're teasing that. Maybe they're not. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to tell sometimes, right? Like maybe, yeah. maybe it is. Maybe not. I don't know. Uh, Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I think that you know their their relationship. You know, I think in some ways, you know, kind of adds to the like the, the boosted female character profile, right? You know, in that it gives you know Murph like you know more to like feel, be conflicted with, etc. You know, there there was what I mentioned earlier about the whole you know how she's like stubborn and you know, like not like, like overly emotional and not willing to come to the phone. Right. A weird like connection that, and you can tell me if you think I'm forcing the issue here, but I, I almost, Scott Harvey and what you were just talking about, like I, I almost felt this like parallel between, you know, Anne, uh, Anne Hathaway's character, you know, wanting to go to Edmonds's planet. And, you know, like there's this question of like, are you doing this because of love or because of, you know, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, the answer was like, you know, like, why can't it kind of be both? Um, yeah. and you know, with Matthew McConaughey, you know, going to space, it's like, are you going because like you finally get the chance to be a pilot and go to space or, or you like, you know, why you can't it, you're saving the human race. And it's like, you know, there was almost this like weird, yeah, it, it's never on either front really like totally explained. Right. Or like, you know, why it, it almost is like, why can't it be both? Right. And I think, you yeah. know, both. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Cause I was just going to say, because in saving the human race, like he, he also shows that he cares about her by leaving her this message, by letting her be the vessel for which the human race is eventually saved. So I think, yeah, he does accomplish both in the end. And that is, you know, what, what Murph comes to realize is that, yeah, the, the fact that he was leaving them didn't necessarily mean that, that he didn't care about her because he cared enough to, go back and leave her this message and, you know, try to um, get her to be the person who saves the day. Yeah. And I think, you know, both, both that relationship and, you know, uh, brands with Edmonds is, or Anne Hathaway's, you know, with this, like uh, this unseen Edmonds character, you know, I, I think like both do go on to like, you know, in the end, you, you know, like boost that like female character and like you know, give them more to do and like give them a real arc like you know you 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 both like already touched plenty on Anne Hathaway's uh and you know I'll, I'll, I'll rehash it uh, with uh Murphs you know I'm sorry to keep switching between the actor and the character but you, you get what I'm saying you know that it uh both characters you know with through these relationships are able to you know like grow perform you know like live honestly like in a world in a, in a, in a film whatever you want to call it you know that we haven't seen them able to do uh, in Nolan films previously. Yeah, it's interesting because right? it, it feels like, again, I, I can totally see Murph's side of things when she's younger, right? Like, wow, like, it really feels like you're abandoning me. Like, you like you are the person that I need in my life right now. It's not my grandfather. It's you. 
and feeling that sense of abandonment. Um, and you can see her going back and forth too, but like she refuses to really like leave on a good note, but then she runs out the door and tries to catch him before he leaves, but he's gone, but he's gone. And then he's gone forever. Right? Like until, well, till the end of the movie, not forever, but you know, for her, basically the rest of her life, he's gone. He's not really there anymore. He's only there as her ghost. If, if you take it to that point when she starts to believe that, and that is true, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really tough relationship. And I feel like there's so few movies where you see this sort of relationship be experienced one through a lens of literally being in different galaxies, but like somehow still communicating with each other. I mean, galaxies, an exaggeration, of course, no other movies have shown that before, but like, uh, like so far away and then communicating with each other in these like really indirect ways. I think that's really interesting a way to explore their, their relationship. They're like, you know, that sort of the bond that they have as father and daughter and being as close as they were before he left. Uh, but then also I think uh, explored it in, in, in such a way where you have this sort of um, like almost like weird, like ex like higher power communication sense of like believing that this person is, you know, almost paranormally communicating with you in this really we interesting and, and weird and certainly sci-fi way. And I think that's go ahead. Yeah, well, I was gonna say it's like that is part of it. I think is like there's there's like this magic. There's this it's supernatural thing to yeah. the relationship, but between a father and daughter specifically, I think because that is right. That is the line at the end, right? When when you know she he he was like, "How did you know I, I you know came would come back?" And she's like, "Because you're my dad, and you said so." Like yeah. it's speaking directly to that parent child relationship, and I think suggesting that hey, there's something cosmic and, and you know magical about this when it is done right yeah yeah and and so i think it's it's really interesting to explore but because like also in a way like usually even when these relationships even in these situations where some people's far apart and they're communicating in these weird indirect ways like it doesn't happen in a setting where all of a sudden 23 years have gone by right and you have to see that evolution mm -hmm. over time and the things that because you're getting almost the majority of the relationship you're getting through McConaughey, through, through the dad's, through McConaughey's perspective. Uh, I think there's really interesting developments in that, that you feel helpless, right? Like you've, cause, because you've seen what's happened on Miller's planet and the time dilation and what that experience was like specifically for Coop. Like you don't, you don't, you, you, uh, you get Coop's perspective, maybe even more than you get Chastain's, you know, Jessica Chastain's Murph's perspective. Um, and then I think that, that adds an interesting element to it as well. And so I think the relationship is really different, really works. It keeps things interesting. Um, yes, I, I, you know, I, I stand by saying like, I think that it's maybe tough to connect the dots on, on Murph's side of things and why she still has faith. But part of that relationship is just having faith that your father is your father. And, and maybe that's, maybe that's this kind of, I just can't, I mean, that, that is the nature of faith, right? In, in any context is that it, it, there is some element of it that is not based on reason or based on, yeah. you know, fact, like, yeah, totally believing without seeing, you know, that's, that's faith. Yeah, I think one of the other, speaking of things that are like heavy themes that you see in the movie around faith, I, I think that one of the other big themes here is around this idea of like, what, like, what is, def, like, what defines pushing humanity to its limits? Like, you talk about, like, there's this whole, mo of, I mean, this whole section of the movie that has, you know, Dr. Man and how he's been pushed to the, like, limits of human capacity to, to, you know, he thought he was prepared to suffer through isolation and despair, right? The fact that no one was ever going to save him. And you have a lot of these monologues, which I actually think like Matt Damon does a pretty decent job doing, even though, again, I'm noted Matt Damon skeptic over here. I think he does a pretty good job delivering them um, in this idea that like, you know, if you had been tested like I had, 
you would have done the same thing that I would have done. And now it's time for me to go save the human race as if he's still some like hero uh, that he viewed. I mean, clearly a very narcissistic, ego, egotistical person who believes that you know, he is the savior of humanity. And he was leading the, the Lazarus project before and convinced the 11 other, like 10 or 11 other people to go on these missions, to these different planets through the wormhole. And I think that that is a super fascinating part of the film, especially, you know, to your point, you pointed out something against guys that Matt Damon was a surprise in this film. Like Matt Damon was not advertised as being in this film. They kept all of the scenes under wraps. It was not leaked before the movie came out that he was in the film. And it was, and that is why they do such a, such a good job earlier on in the movie, not showing you that in the picture in the background in like the NASA room is like, it's actually Matt Damon, but we're not going to show you up close who Dr. Man is for that reason. It's why they like suspend it for so long in the scene. They remove him from the cryo sleep that they don't show you his face for like a really long period of time. And you know, obviously that was a big surprise. Chris Nolan just trying to add new elements of suspense to his film, I guess, and uh, just show you how cool he is as a film filmmaker. I don't know, but I think he, he adds a really interesting element of like, you know what, like what you're going, going through as a crew sucks. Like you're about to realize, or you already realize that it's all a lie. Like you're like, there's no going back for humanity. There's no saving earth, but you can still save humanity. And I think that, that Damon's character adds a really interesting uh, element of the theme here around like, what is the capacity for humanity to like exist in isolation and restart and build from the ground up? And I don't know if the film goes super, super deep into explaining this, but I thought it was an interesting theme to complement what you're getting with these relationships between Brand and her father, Brand and, and Edmonds, you know, Coop and Murph and Coop and Brand. And, and I think it's an interesting compliment to all these relationships. And I'd love to get more of your thoughts here. Jay, what do you think? You know, I... Like, I, I don't want to say this. I think I, I like echo a lot of what you said, you know, in terms of like, it, it's really interesting to see like, you know, what humanity's like limits are like through, you know, this character's lens, this like, you know, like noted hero, right? Like everyone just kept referring to him as, you know, like better, like, you know, the, the best of us. And like, you know, like, and, and you know, he, he touched like fire back with, you know, like you have no idea like what I've had to go through. But I think that, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to, tie into i think a later topic dr brand's lie i think both uh, of those I, we've already talked about it go ahead sure well i think both of those things you know kind of like the way that both those things play out to me like say you know like human connections really are what make us human right and like you like our, our limitations do not or rather are confined by those connections like man you know very much is like you know i i really tried i thought i was prepared to die i thought i was never prepared to see another human again but then like you know not only like you know like did what he did to get people to come to his planet. But then, you know, in this fight scene with McConaughey is very much trying to be like, look like, 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 even though he clearly has this like narcissistic complex, right. It's also like simultaneously like trying really hard to be understood, you know, and not be like alone in like, you know, knowing what he did and how he, like weak he felt. And similarly, like Dr. Brand, you know, like, and again, like, you know, can't not going to pretend to know what like, you know, that burden is of knowing, you know, humanity is doomed and I couldn't figure out the solution and whatever, like, you know, on his deathbed has to very much be like, you know, I, I lied and like, we're, we're doomed. And like, you know, I, I need you, you know, Murph to like see this and you can, you know, argue what his motivations were for that. But I think the fact that those things happen, you know, like pretty close in time, you know, like on screen, I mean, and that, you know, we, you know, see these like two, you know, like essentially people who are, you know, at the pinnacle of their field, you know, kind of breaking down, you know, un under like, you know, I, I guess like the, the lack of understanding and, you know, the, the, 
the challenge that like of like you know being alone and dealing with like your your burdens you know basically i think to me say you know like nah like we we really aren't like meant to do without it and you know i think that that's only hammered home right by you know the whole the ending love is the fifth dimension yada yada and i think you know brand's lie and man's you know confession like both really serve to like set you up for that yeah i i think brand to tie that just to tie that topic in i think right it's it's sort of like brand and man are on the same page here right like they know that they will not be able to convince people to work on this project if they tell them the truth right like not thinking that it's possible to do these things uh to be motivated to do these things if you're going to be forced to abandon people that you love to do them like like you can't like coop wouldn't have like would coop have done it if he knew if he knew that he was leaving his daughter uh and his son and his father-in-law to to die on earth like would he have done it maybe not would man have been able to convince the 10 or 11 other people who were on this lazarus project at the beginning to fly off into space to if they knew that they were leaving all of humanity behind on earth to die probably not and i think that's an interesting element to add in here and and it's interesting and not maybe not surprising ultimately that these two people are on the same page since they are leading the project scott any other thoughts to add here on, on either topic i mean I, I like the idea that this that this person this matt damon character is kind of a tool to achieve what they want to achieve right like it in order for them to finally get where they're going, in order for McConaughey to achieve the mission of the project and, and Anne Hathaway's character, you know, you have to have this character who gets sent up and, you know, really disillusioned with, with everything. And like, yeah. he, again, he, he is w without this person existing, without him becoming disillusioned, without him, you know, trying to turn on McConaughey and uh, you know, the rest of the crew and, you know, literally, calling them out there so that he would be rescued. Um, like you, you wonder, they probably don't achieve their goal or whatever. So, so that's kind of the dark side to it. I think is that there are people there are, you know, and there are these people who are propped up by society, maybe as heroes, right. Who necessarily have to sort of also be sacrificed in the process of, of saving humanity. We have to break down the idea that this person is a hero. And that's why I think like, I think that explains Brand's lie to some extent, right? Because he is like, th this is his second option. Like th this is his backup option. They, they, they're they no longer expecting um, McConaughey and crew to be like the heroes, quote unquote, because they're not expecting them to come back, right? They are expecting them to be sort of this vessel to go out there to accomplish this goal. And, and that's the end of it, right? Like it's all about plan B. That yeah. Really the uh, only thing they're doing is plan B. Exactly. Um, and, and so, um, I think that that explains and and that shows the dark side of it, right? Where whereas you know you can feel very emotional and like, hey, they did it, they saved humanity at the end of the movie. There is there is a you know a, a sharp end to the knife, which is what you see with this Matt Damon character. That there are people like um, like Doctor Man and like Edmonds, right? Like the the last image of the movie is is Anne Hathaway standing there where Edmonds's grave is um on this planet and so like that is what you are left with right like you you're left with hey we saved humanity here's anna hathaway having found the the planet but here is the cost and yeah. you know you see that in in edmonds all right guys final topic here before we wrap things up is the one maybe maybe everyone's been waiting for it's where jay and i maybe take the ending to task and scott says it works uh maybe something more nuanced than that i don't know but yes gargantua 
we talked about the slingshot already. That happens 51 years ago by and and uh, Matthew McConaughey gets his Bruce Willis and Armageddon moment where he gets to jettison his craft and and make the sacrifice that uh, that all good fathers <laughs> make <laughs> make in space movies. Well, they're not and, nuking an asteroid. But. <laughs> yeah, that's, tr- that's true. But going into a black hole, uh, arguably similar odds if, if you're a scientist. Never probably. tell me the odds. Yeah, never tell me the odds. You know, Han Solo needed to be in this one. You're right. <laughs> Alden Ehrenreich all the way. Um, no. It, yeah. So he drops into the black hole. And what you find inside is that I don't know if love is the fifth dimension is the right answer. But what you get is this sort of this higher existence, this higher perception where, you know, time is no longer a dimension in which that which you don't have control over. You can now move uh, across time and interact through gravity with the, the past present and presumably the future as well if you'd gone far enough but uh yeah guys this this was a bit this is where the in my first watch the movie completely lost me if i'm being honest i think this time is where i maybe had a, like i was saying a more evolved take on this and kind of saying you know what we don't know what's happening in here so maybe this works and i think that ties together certain parts of the, the movie nicely of course ties up loose ends from earlier on in the film uh, but guys before we get to shooting out of the black hole uh, which is where my problems lie what did you think of what did you think of inside this tesseract like structure of uh, a four dimensional cube? Was yeah, I mean it's it's wild to watch her. Right? Like you, you just don't even quite understand what you're seeing. But um, I mean, I think that's the point, right? Again, because we don't know what is on the other side of of these black holes. So I think they create something that is feasible like that 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 could be how things are structured over there like right it could be this giant cube but just watching mcconaughey traverse his way through it and you know pushing the books and all of that i think is it's it's mystifying to watch and that is um the kind of like speculative science stuff that i I thought was was really cool about the movie yeah jay what do you think yeah, you know, it, it. the movie really lost me here on the first viewing, and it, you know, was slightly less troublesome the second time around. But, yeah, you know, the fact that, you know, Matthew McConaughey not only can, you know, navigate higher dimensions being compressed down to three dimensions because of love, but the fact that he's, he, he's basically, like, you know, tying up all the loose ends of, like, how this, you know, how the the wormhole was created, how the space has been created, who's been doing this. And he's essentially just figuring this out and figuring out how to navigate, you know, three-dimensional space not bound by time, infinite three-dimensional space not bound by time, you know, or bound by infinite time, you know, because he loves his daughter. Like, it just, that was just, that was tough. And I don't know, like, I, I think this is around the time, I think this was the first Nolan movie I saw after I, like, really had, like, like you know, dove in head first into like all the Nolan movies and was like, Oh my God, like I cannot wait to see what he does with this. And even the first hour of this movie, you know, is so like intriguing with this concept of they and all these gravitational anomalies and what could be causing this. And just the fact that it was, you know, like he figured it out because of love, you know, and he figured out how to navigate, albeit again, a very mystifying scene, you know, because of love, it just fell a little flat for me. And just, it was a little too like, convenient you know you what you're going to talk about the, you know the popping out of the wormhole sure but you know even that everything in there to me just it felt so convenient yeah yeah i mean look like i know he says it's love tars or whatever in it but i don't yeah. like is that but is i don't i i guess my evol- part of my evolved take is that that's not really what it is and and i don't think the movie is trying to tell you love is is what it is either it's just that like this is like what has 
willed it into like i don't know like i, I don't have a really good way to describe it which isn't a good answer but i don't know if the film thinks that it's love because in, it's, un but it's unexplainable right like it is indescribable yeah. to some extent like that is part of it again there is there is this cosmic force this emotional force going on that sort of transcends all of our our logic and like i think that yes it's definitely cheesy to have like you know someone saying like love finds a way or or you know whatever Anne hathaway says like i i don't think that was probably the best way to get that across but like ultimately i think it works because i think the movie is in the end about um you know the importance of you know having emotional connections and relationships with with people like you can, you can't live your life in this objective bubble um and that you know an important part of being human is connecting with humanity yeah yeah look like i i think that that may or may not be true i, I think that part of what i basically for me my first view what was frustration turned to kind of a little bit of a shrug and an emotional payoff that i think the film probably earned uh inside here and understanding that this is maybe this is what is what is required for storytelling and none of us know what's inside the black hole anyway so it's a shrug so it's a shrug i don't know it's certainly convenient that's for sure and i think where the film for me then goes astray is is how convenient it takes its ending and getting shot back out outside saturn in just the right time where he can be picked up by this ship before his oxygen runs out. I mean, look, guys, that's like really freaking convenient, I think, by any standard of, of filmmaking. Hey, look, well, in The Prestige, it was also really convenient that that Angier was able to just build this, or that, that uh, that what's-his-face, the Nikolai Tesla. Tesla was able to yeah. just build this machine that very conveniently was able to teleport, um, you know, Angier in the way that he wanted to be. Well, and it's so, not teleporting, but, but well, you I, know, I, I get yeah, your point. A, a close, I get your point. A, a closer comparison, and uh, I hate to badmouth this movie, but did you have the same complaint when Captain Marvel picked up Iron Man in Endgame, seemingly inexplicably, <laughs> finding well, him floating through the you know the emptiness of space? I think we could like look. I think this is one of the. We'll <laughs> I think this is one of the problems with uh, with you know maybe that we're seeing with nolan's filmmaking is that it can be a little deliberate at times like you can you could see the strings right that he is pulling in order to to reach the outcome that he wants like this is not the first movie in in which this has happened yeah but i do think it's the most blatant of the ones i know that you probably disagree scott because i know how you feel about the prestige but um i do think this is like by far the most convenient one because yes i hear what you're saying around the prestige and tesla's machine etc but it feels like for for a film that is so grounded in science and yes we don't know we like we just don't know the black hole like this just feels like taking it a step too far and and something about i guess something about the prestige right it just feels like yeah it's definitely a shrug that they make this he makes this machine that's able to do the disappearing man and um in this in this like really fantastical fantasy way right but that feels it feels less um i don't know like uh perpendicular to the plot of that film right it, it doesn't feel as out of place in the prestige as it maybe does here but that's just me i mean and, and again the last thing i would say again on the science point is just that it's all greek to me right like yes yeah. it, it yeah. is true that this movie is very scientifically accurate and that maybe this part departs from that but i yeah. think if you ask the average moviegoer like what you know do you think the science was accurate in the movie they're going to be like i don't know um and, and like so so I, I think that that's where i come down on it yeah. 
ultimately is that I don't really care as much if it goes away from being accurate in the end because I didn't really even really know that that it was accurate to begin with. So, and I don't think that's the point. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think Chris Nolan is relying on that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that perception in order to to get to get it through. But Jay, I don't know if you have anything else to add on this topic. Nope. Let's wrap it up and put a bow on it. All right. Well, let's let's do that then, guys. Uh, we know what Jay's se- favorite scene is. We know what my favorite scene is. Um, so Scott, why don't you go first? Uh, I think that we didn't really mention the docking, but I thought that that sequence is oh, really, yeah. really cool. Um, and yeah. actually is another clear ode to, to Space Odyssey because there's a famous docking scene in that movie. The only uh, the, the um, difference here is that we don't actually have to watch the entire journey of the freaking spaceship, like from takeoff to... Um, I, somebody said this the other night on on a show that I watch on Multiplex that... that the movie that 2001 would probably be a lot better if you just assumed in certain parts that the ships took off and landed like without having to see the entire journey. But anyway, that's a comment on how slowly paced 2001 is. But I well, thought that that's an interesting topic just before you do t- set, talk more about that scene. Like it's an interesting topic in general, but like how I can't remember where I was hearing this or reading this. But like one of the ways that movies have evolved is like just allowing you to like assuming that it's readers know that like certain things happen in between certain events yeah. that they don't have to show. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, to your point, that's one of the things that this movie is able to do. And that maybe a movie made in the sixties, right? Like space odyssey was made in the sixties or seventies. Um, yeah. Sixties. Yeah, uh, it, it doesn't take for granted that it's <laughs> viewers can understand that a, a ship takes off and lands. That's fair. Uh, so pave the way for this movie, no doubt. But um, yeah. I think that's a really like spellbinding and suspenseful sequence, right? Like at the end when totally. they do successfully die, even though, you know, you're pretty sure they're going to do it. Also, that there organ is, is fire in that yeah, scene. The score is really good. There's just like a big exhale at the end of the scene. Yeah. I feel like when they finally are able to do it. So I like think the- set piece wise, like I've talked about all the emotional moments. I really like the yeah. set piece wise. That's a standout. Yeah, what McConaughey is doing in that scene is so cool that Anne Hathaway passes out before he's able to knock the plane. (laughs) Jay, uh, any thoughts on that scene or what your favorite scene is and remind us? Sure. Uh, I mean, that scene is awesome. Uh, Definitely up there, you know, just to remind you guys, my favorite scene still is watching Matthew McConaughey, you know, watch those videos of his kids. Again, you know, we've, I I, I was, you know, as I was saying, as I said out loud, you know, I feel like I've never seen a tragedy like this on screen. You know, you think of like, you know, characters like going into comas or whatnot and waking up and not realizing how much time has passed. But again, this just feels like, you know, a step beyond that, right? Like it's using a vehicle we've never seen used like this in relativity, right? And again, like he was conscious, awake and like fully realizing, though not necessarily like, you know, wrapping his mind around the fact that, right? around the fact, right, that, like, you know, 23 years were about to pass. Yeah, it's, like, so um, hard to process. Like, how is it even possible? Yeah, no, you can't. And, you know, you, you see him try to, you know, when he's watching those videos. And again, like, I, I didn't cry at the end, but I cried during that, you know, because mm. my heart just broke for the guy, you know. Yeah. He, you know, somehow deluded himself into thinking he was going to get back to his kids, you know, soon, I guess, maybe, like, a, or, you know, eventually. And, you know, this seemed to really put a damper on that hope. And, you know, watching him, like, not only deal with that, but, you know, watch his kids, his son, you know, essentially, like, you know, like lose faith in the fact that he's going to come home and, you know, finally get his, like, you know, talking to from his daughter. Like, yeah, you know, it just, that, that hurt. Yeah, it's the scene where you simultaneously see, to go back to what you were saying, you know, got the cost of what this thing what this thing um, is, right? Of what he's doing is, but also not just that, not just the cost of, of the sacrifice he's making, but also the, you know, what the cost is of everyone who's still on earth, right? Like the fact that their son died, 
like their first son or yeah. I, I think it's son or daughter. I can't remember which it is, you know, dies early, early in childhood just because you know, the air quality is so poor that um, they weren't able to, to live past early childhood. At least that's the, I don't know if it explicitly says that, but that's the, I think that's the heavy assumption. The implication. Yeah. yeah I think yeah, yeah. Son, I think you see one and name him Coop, but then named him Jesse or something. Yeah. And then the second, they named the second son Coop, the, the son that's alive in the film huh. and it's named Coop. But yeah, no, I think that it's, it's really, I mean, it's really powerful, right? And I think you, you see the full cost of what's what's happening. And it, f- it feels like there's some disconnect there, right? Because you just watched Matthew Begani for like 20 minutes on this planet. And all of a sudden, what, 23 years has gone by? He was awake for 23 years. What? Uh, yeah, it's really strange. And, and you get that even before that scene, right? When you when you see Romilly, right? When he's like now older and his beard is great. And like, why didn't you sleep? You're like, well, I did for some of it, but um, I didn't for all of it. So yeah. Good scene. And then mine, of course, to similar, you know, right before that Miller's planet, I stand by it really phenomenal scene. And the, the moment where I knew it was like my favorite scene in the film, right. Is when Tars just goes crazy out there in the water. I think that's absolutely awesome. Uh, awesome moment. And as weird as the design may or, or may not be, it's uh it's cool that you can take that design and then make some sort of like wheel mechanism out of it that can just roll across the water. Like that is really, really cool. Really, really cool. All right, guys, let's let's really put a bow on this. What score are you giving Interstellar J out of 10? 7.5. 7.5. Scott, what about you? Look, there are some lines of dialogue I don't like that I've mentioned. There's the Topher Grace character. There's the odd thing here and there. But, yeah, it doesn't have to be perfect to get the two hands. That's crazy yeah. to me. Giving it a 10. That's crazy love, love to me. Way. Love finds a way to get a 10. Oh man. my God. No. <laughs> well, guys, all I'm going to say is that I saw I saw Scott Harvey's letterbox review when he saw this movie, and I knew immediately that he was giving it a 10. Not surprised and, at all. And look, look, despite how Jay's react despite Jay's reaction, you can find plenty of people who are in the same camp as me out yeah. there. Uh, I actually think from, from what I see about this movie, it seems like it has aged pretty well and that over time, people, some people have come around to actually really like it. So, yeah, I, I don't know about that, but I think it's definitely true that uh, when it came out, the film was somewhat polarizing, maybe more so than Nolan movies mm-hmm. often are. And that some people thought like, look, a lot of people put this in their top five movies of the decade. Like, mm-hmm. honestly, like this is in a picked it as his number one of the decade. Yeah. Like there's plenty of people who are out there saying this movie is like one of the greatest movies of all time, which look, I can see it. Like, I really can. I can see it. I I wish I could get there for me. And my second viewing brought me closer to that. Like part of me can can shrug away some of the concerns that I had in my first viewing. Uh, part of me can. And then there are some people here who are taking tests like, yeah, like this movie like pretends to be to be real science, but really just like caves under uh, under its own like ambition in the last action. And I, and I see that, too. And I see that too. I see some of that too in terms of like how convenient some of the last parts of the film are. Uh, but the reality is, is that when I sit back and I think about watching this movie for a second time, is that I really love this movie. I still really, I, I do love this movie. Maybe it's just me standing for Nolan. I don't know. Like something about this film, just like the, the best parts of it are just so freaking good. Like the best parts of this film are just so, so good. Some of the best that Nolan has to offer. Uh, it's definitely not getting past the Dark Knight for me. Uh, and it's not going to be a 10 for me either because I think there are some like very legitimate flaws to it from my experience watching it but to say to go back to a question that i asked jailer to say that i'd never watch this film again is like crazy to me like i i yeah, like same. i do think this is like one of the gold standards and like ingenuity around how to like make a space film like i just like there are so many filmmakers out there i'm sure that would just love to freaking have half the idea that nolan like the nolan brothers and, and other people who are making these and like Emma Thomas and people like that who are producing these films like had in making these films because they are so creative. They are so brilliantly realized on screen. And the is like a huge 
huge milestone in that. Like, I, I really do think it's incredible. I am only giving it an 8.5, but I think that it's a really incredible film um, and one that I wouldn't be surprised if it continues to grow on me the more times I, re- I revisit it. And I want to revisit it. And that's not true after the first time I'd watched it. All right, guys, with that, we really appreciate all of you listening for part nine of our Nolan Countdown, the penultimate episode. Please follow our podcast on Twitter at at Media Plug Pods. Subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, however, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcast, where we'd appreciate if you rated and reviewed, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we can continue to reach a broader audience. And with that, we really appreciate all of you for listening to part nine of our Nolan Countdown miniseries. Don't forget to check out all the other podcasts in the Some Like It's Got feed, including our latest episode of Some Like It's Got, which I think at the time this is released will actually be episode 100, where we, Scott and I uh, rate, uh, not rate, sorry, we list our top 10 uh, films of all time. I don't think Interstellar is going to make it on there for either of us, uh, but TBD, whether another Nolan film makes it onto the list. So uh, don't forget to check that out, as well as our latest episode of Champ's Lunch. And we'll be back next week with the final episode in the Nolan Countdown Part 10, when the three of us will be revisiting Chris Nolan's epic war drama, Dunkirk. Until then, for Scott Harvey and Jay Abib, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.